for another edition of Cosmos with Cosmos. I'm Liz. I'm Mike. I'm Brandon. And uh, this week we are talking about Pluto. Pluto. Ooh, our favorite little former planet. That's right. Well, well planet. Is Pluto going to be a favorite former planet, or is that going to be like Ceres, your favorite former planet, or even no. Alderaan? <laughs> well, no, it's Pluto. Do we? It's Pluto. So, Star Wars was mentioned. Do we have to drink? I don't know if those yeah. Rules so applies. Well, we haven't started. A, we haven't started the game yet. Oh, okay. Well, right. uh, I've already have the glass on my lips, so. Okay, fair enough. All right, I'll but. So I think we have at least one person watching. Which is exciting. Hey, so if, uh, you're, so if you're listening to this, we're also streaming this live on Twitch for the first time ever. No idea what we're doing, so um, enjoy, apparently. It'll, it'll be two and a half hours of, of funny video when, when it's all done. You get drunk and rambling. Two and a half hours. That's, that's, uh, well, that's how long we've been generous. doing it before. Well, kind of. All right, so let's, let's uh, get into what we're drinking. Mike, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an Orc Cloud, Ooh. vodka, orange juice, um, was it uh, Caribbean rum, which is not exactly, no, coconut rum, which is not exactly something you'd find on, uh, that you would think about with Pluto, but it has a nice little flavor, yeah. and um, has uh, cranberry juice. Nice. Ooh. Nice. I am drinking um, its technical name, its real name is is an old-fashioned, but for this episode, it is called the Tomba. The Tomba. Ooh, who's that named after? You will Clyde. find out. You will find out later in this podcast. It's very, very, very relevant to Pluto. Very much so. <laughs> All right. Brandon. And I am, I am drinking Tholin. Uh, Tholin is some gunk we're going to talk about later on in the episode, but it's a very basic ingredient. Um, so it's just some, uh, whiskey with a spurt of orange in there. Very hmm. basic. Tholin. Nice. Yeah, basic. Tholin. Tholin. Son of Tomba. Sounds like a dwarf from, uh, <laughs> from the It does. Tholin, son of Gimli. Gimli, son of Tholin. Oh, Gimli is son of Gloin, technically. Gloin, son of Tholin. There. There you go. <laughs> Gimli's. Grandorf? Grandorf? Oh, clever. Wow. Oh. Anyway, none of that relates to Pluto whatsoever. So before we get into Pluto, you don't though. Know. Uh, you don't know. <laughs> let's, again, refresh the rules a little bit, which is if you hear any dogs barking, uh, take a drink. Uh, they yep. will inevitably bark. Um, <laughs> although, luckily, one is asleep right now. The other one's meandering about a bit, um, which is good. And uh, the other one is if there's a Star Wars reference. Yep. Drink. Were Works there any other weird rules that we had? No, no, that was about it. I don't remember. Okay. Okay. I would say if we do a Lord of the Rings reference, but we would die. <laughs> we already started would, the show out with die. like two minutes of Lord of the Rings references. So that would just yeah. be downing our drinks immediately. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and start out with our astronomy events of the week. Mike? Okay, well, um, there was actually a lot of them um, for the past uh, last week and for the week coming up or so. But uh, basically, since the 1st of, uh, 1st of August, October, 1st of October. <laughs> you don't know what month we're in. I, I have no idea where I'm at right now. What year is it? <laughs> 
1974. <laughs> oh. I don't know why. I don't know why it's that year. I love the accent. 1974. Indeed. We're going to go back in time a little bit past 1974, October 1st, 1920. Actually, let's go even further back than that. 1608. Uh, October 2nd, 1608. A little further. Yeah, it's a little further back. Uh, The first patent application for a telescope uh was put in uh by the by the guy who actually made it hans lippershey lippershey see everybody thinks that that galileo invented the telescope because he's most famous for using one to discover cool shit um but no hans actually invented the telescope and then galileo came along was like oh hey what if i point this at the sky at night and then it was and like right down what see. um all right anyway so by the way interestingly enough that patent was declined <gasps> yep so i guess they did not see the value, value in it <laughs> see the value in a, <laughs> a magnifying glass yeah <laughs> Which is weird because it was it was military use at first. You didn't really care about looking up in the sky. It was how far over sure. the horizon can you see yeah. the enemy coming? Yeah, of course it was military first. All right, so that was um, sixteen oh eight. Go forward a little bit to uh, nineteen twenty, October first, nineteen twenty. Uh, nuclear fusion in stars, uh, the sun and stars were were figured out. Uh, was figured out. Um, you you have heard this name before. Uh, Eddington? Arthur. Arthur Eddington. Is he British? Yeah, what what a good English name. Drink. Right off the bat. Seriously? Knew it. I knew that was going to happen. Um, anyway, so Eddington uh, actually proposed it. Uh, he thought that nuclear fusion would power the sun and stars, and um, in particular hydrogen into helium, but he also thought that heavier elements could come up in as well. Mm. Um, Hans Bethe actually worked out the process. Won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, uh, this is also in the 1920s, and he literally, literally, at least according to legend, physics legend, looked at the periodic table and worked out the process. Um, it's called huh. it's called a proton proton chain, and um, there's actually two processes stars can use to go from hydrogen to helium. So for nuclear fusion. Stars like our sun will use that proton-proton chain. Um, the higher mass stars will actually use a, what's called the CNO cycle. And so, but proton-proton chain is the main one. And proton-proton chain is also the name of my debut album. Hey! <laughs> so be ready for that when that drops. Sounds like it, it, like drop a, it sounds like it'd be like one of those wedding dances, you know? All right, but everybody, it's time for the proton-proton chain! And you gotta be careful because it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out! We're going to drop it like it's hot. Because it's nuclear fusion. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Go forward about 12 years. Um, and uh, Cepheid variables were found in the Andromeda, Gal- Andromeda galaxy. Um, the great thing about Cepheid variables, uh, they, they're, they're pulsating stars, but the rate at which they pulsate um, is is tied to how bright they are, their luminosity. So they're what we call standard candles, so you can use them to figure out how far away something is. So if you find a Cepheid variable inside of, say, another galaxy, you can uh, figure out how far away that galaxy is. 
Go ahead. You no. were going to say something. I w- no, continue. I was just going to ask a ridiculous question. Okay, so uh, it was Edwin Hubble who Woo. was the first to, to spot it. Um, and he spotted it in the Andromeda Galaxy using the 100-inch telescope um, uh, Mount Wilson Observatory. Hey. And I love... I, I always giggle at its name for no apparent reason. It's Mount called Wilson. the Hooker. Oh, the Hooker no, the, telescope. The, the telescope. The Hooker telescope. Yeah, it just makes me smile. I, I giggle like a 12-year-old. <laughs> Do you have to pay to use it? Pay for this? <laughs> Especially when it's erect up. Oh, man, that'd be such a great peep show. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Fast forward a few years, uh, the first estimate of the Milky Way's age, um, October 1st, uh, 1957. This uh, this makes me laugh a little bit because um, the age was between 6.6 and 18 billion years. That's a <laughs> pretty like, that's a massive, wide gap. Massive range. Um, I mean, they're within that. It's within that, so I guess they, they were correct. They, but they, but you say first estimate. What what, what do you mean by first? Because we were trying to estimate that age for hundreds of years before, right? So um, there were some astronomers, Margaret and Jeffrey Burbage, which sounds like straight out of Harry Potter. Uh, William Fowler and Fred Hoyle put out a um, um, a paper. Um, yeah, so um, paper of stellar physics that outlined and analyzed several key processes responsible for the synthesis of um, elements in the nature and their relative abundance. Um, and Ooh. The, and that's, sorry, that's one of my favorite papers is synthesis of elements of stars. What a good paper. Yeah, and they basically um, used that to come up um, with, the, with the age of, of, of the Milky Way. Um, it's called the B2FH paper. Nice. That's well, great naming. Well, it's it's named for the Burbages, so two Bs, B two. Oh, and F for oil. Fowler. Yep. It's like H two O, two hydrogens and an oxygen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. F for Fowler and uh, H for Fred Hoyle. Yeah. And I, I was also thinking this may have been the first actual estimate of the Milky Way because a couple of decades before this, you had a great debate in astronomy whether or not the Milky Way is the entire galaxy or the entire universe, rather. Right. And those other dots out there are just nothing else. So I, I guess this is the first time we've confirmed that, yes, the Milky Way is one galaxy, uh, galaxy am- amongst a sea of galaxies. So let's figure out how uh, ours is. Well, no, I mean... No, no. Oh, so close. It, well, you were, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, with uh, Hubble and the Cepheid variables, he was able to figure out the Andromeda yeah. galaxy is not in our galaxy. Oh, we'll, we'll, talk about that. Our we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, and so this is the first to actually put an age on the Milky Way itself. So, um, 1957, big year. A um, couple of days later, the launch of Sputnik. 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 What does Sputnik mean again? Traveler? Uh, uh, sure. Th- thank you for looking right at me. It's something like fellow traveler, peaceful traveler, something yeah, like something that. Yeah, something nice and sweet. And, it and, not at all, freak- and not at all menacing. And it no. freaked people out. Yeah. So that was the and- beginning of the space race. Except for the Truman administration, because they kind of knew it was coming and didn't get what the big deal was, up until Sputnik 2, when Truman then fired, or sorry, Eisenhower then fired his science advisor. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a year later, NASA was uh, founded. 
NASA. Yay, NASA. October first, nineteen fifty-eight. Take that, NACA. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so uh, nineteen fifty-nine, October seventh, nineteen fifty-nine, the first image of the far side of the moon happened, Ooh. and this is a cool ass story. It, it, all right, so it was a Soviet it. spacecraft. Uh-huh. It was Luna 3. Um, and Luna 3 was the first spacecraft to actually get a gravitational assist. Um, it needed that to return to Earth, as we'll find out here in a moment. A slingshot but, action. So what it did was it clearly went... It was also the first spacecraft to be stabilized, that it could be stabilized in three different directions, which is important if you want to take a picture on that object. <laughs> so I went to the far side of the moon, um, took the picture. This was film. It took a film picture, a picture on film. It was film in space? Film in space. space and film. it actually has Luna, Luna 3 had his own dark room. And <laughs> so it took the pictures. It's like 30 pictures or something. I don't remember. Um, it took the pictures and then moved the film into its its processing dark room, its lab, developed the pictures, and then um, using some CRT technology, uh, <laughs> shine the, a light through that actual film and was able to make a digital picture of it. But originally it was, uh, it was actually on film. So how do you get that, that picture to earth? At the time, the transmitter wasn't strong enough, so it had to use a gravitational assist from the moon to go to the Earth and to beam those pictures back down to the Earth. And um, wow! And it and it it obviously did it, but um, at first they weren't getting the signal from it as it approached Earth because it was it was too weak. But then eventually they were able, to, obviously, to get some pictures and download those pictures and and showed it. <laughs> So in, in 1959, this is an amazing technology. An amazing story. It took a photo on film and then set, beamed it back to Earth digitally. Right. <laughs> right. Wow. Also, I would like to point out that uh, if you might have uh, heard, Mike called it the first image of the far side, far side of the moon. It's not called the dark side. It does see sunlight back there, people. I'm it is really not glad Pink I Floyd. Didn't call it the dark side. It's the far it's the side. <laughs> And far side. Remember, astronomers are obvious when they're naming shit. Near side, far side. Damn you, Pink Floyd, but amazing Maybe music. Pink Floyd's awesome. So. Well, yeah. Even at the end of the album, they go, there really is no dark side of the moon. Like You guys can say that like in the beginning. I know, like a little, <laughs> like an asterisk on the cover of the Very album. Just like, right? In the liner print. notes. There is no dark side of the moon. It is the far side. <laughs> yeah, but when we got, when we, when the Soviets got the picture back, it was completely different from what anybody was expecting for the moon. When you look at the moon, right. near side, filled with craters, mm-hmm. beautiful the, the mare. mare. The dark spots on the moon. The mare. There's, uh, That's a mare. Hey. <laughs> there, there, uh, there is no a mare. There is no mare on the far side of the moon. Right. Um, so the, it's, uh, the far side of the moon is nothing but craters. Heavily cratered. And so, we need to have a podcast just about the moon. Yeah, we do. I want to go off on let's this. Not, let's not get into it. Google Moon Mare. We will get into it at a later date because we could spend the rest of the show talking about. We could. 
We could. We have a, we have another moon-sized object to talk about. We do. We do. But a little I, bit smaller than the moon. I just want to say one thing. Um, okay, right, say, so. one, say your one thing, Mike. No, I'll, I will say that one of the big mysteries of the moon has to do with why it's all craters on the far side. And it's the, the, the crust of the moon on the far side is thicker than the crust on the near side. So the question is why? That's a really big mystery right now. That is it? I thought it, it had so, to do with the Earth's gravity. And it... Well, that was one of the theories, which is really cool. So, but we, but, but we don't know for sure. So it's a hypothesis. Yeah, right, so really quick, because the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, only one side faces the Earth, uh, the theory goes is that the Earth's gravity over these eons has been stretching out slowly the crust of the moon, letting, letting it kind of become thinner, so when asteroids hit it, it's more likely to break open, lava spew out, and, be, and, get, and get the mirrors. The yeah, seas. I thought that was pretty much like set in stone that that uh, was a thing that happened, but I guess not. We'll discuss that later on in a future. Yes, episode. we will. Hey, but for now, couple more things. Oh. Um, these next. Never <laughs> <laughs> mind. For now, what? I keep trying to make these segues into our main topic of the show. <laughs> well, and every time I'm foiled. Why did you pull my? Don't do that. Oh, I, I, I keep thinking it's getting caught in your iPad. No, it's okay. fine. No, there are two more. Marriage. There's this one. And then I have one more story. All right. These are recent stories from okay. last week. Okay. So, the, so um, now to present times. Yeah, now to present times, exactly. <laughs> um, giant exoplanet uh, found around a tiny star that should not even exist. So, uh, basically, there is a very small red dwarf star that has a planet going around it. Possibly two planets, but we know one for sure which is about half the size of, um, of Jupiter, mass-wise. So its mass is half. The star or the planet? Uh, the star itself is about 12% the mass of the sun, okay. so it's really small. Okay. And then the, the planet itself, which takes about seven months to go around the, pl- on the star, Ooh, is half the mass of Jupiter. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's pretty big. And so the, the prevailing thought is that when these really small stars form... They take up most of the gas and dust, and you mm-hmm. shouldn't have big gas giant planets that are forming. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why the astronomers are saying it shouldn't exist. Well, clearly it fucking exists. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's an illusion. <laughs> yeah, it's a hologram by the U.S. military. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, that's going to kind of push our our thoughts on how how planets form around, around other stars. Mm-hmm. Um, the other other news that came down this week was the Spitzer Telescope. The Spitzer Telescope is one of the great observatories, which um, uh, does uh, infrared imagery. So when we think of big telescopes, we always think of Hubble. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of them, one yes. of the great observatories. It's uh, visible light. Mm-hmm. It also uh, does some light that we can't see, but Spitzer is the main infrared one. Took a picture of a big cloud of dust and gas in the constellation of Aquila, the eagle, and the uh, this big cloud of dust and gas has these really big bubbles in it where these newly formed baby stars with their solar wind have blown out these big bubbles Aww, surrounding them. little baby stars being born. Pretty much. It's a, little, it's a stellar little, nursery. Little yeah. Proplets. And so... Proplets. 
Master News. I've I've always called it Aquila rather than Aquila. It's like Aquila the Hun. And I would call it Aquila, like Aquila. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think we all make up our own pronunciations with the constellations. A, yeah. We don't know actually how to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's an eagle. But if you, uh, at least with the, the planetarium system that we use. Oh, it did not look like an eagle. It looks like a stingray. Oh. <laughs> it looks yeah. real weird. It, yeah. The great stingray in the sky. All right. So all now right. we've covered astronomy events of the week and past 100 years. Um, but wait, there's more. <laughs> no. There's no more astronomy events. <laughs> now we're going to get to the topic of the show, which is Pluto. Pluto. I got one more thing. I'll, I'll no. <laughs> oh, God damn it, Mike. I'll divorce you right here and now. <laughs> no, you won't. No, you won't. No, it's too much paperwork. So <laughs> Pluto, a history. Let's talk about. Let's talk about Pluto, Brandon. Where did it come from? What's it doing? What's going on? Where, where, where did it come from? Where did it go? What's it up to? Cotton Eye Joe. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I guess we should first of all just ask the question right away before we get into Pluto. Uh, Liz, is Pluto awesome? Is Pluto... <laughs> I was drinking, but on, it's the on. most awesome. Is it a planet? No. Yes or no? No. Mike. No. Is it awesome? Oh, oh, without a doubt, it's Come awesome. Come on, we're, do, we're doing this. Okay, it's awesome. But a planet? No. All right, so th- this is what we'll get into later on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Brandon, is Pluto awesome? Pluto is super awesome. Is it a planet? It is a type of planet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. All right. Oh, my gosh. All right, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, set, I set y'all up. Ha-ha. But, yeah, a history... Uh, Pluto. We're not going to go back 4.5 billion years and talk about the evolution of the solar system, because that's going to take 4.5 billion years with us. Uh, so instead, <laughs> yeah. we're going to talk about the acknowledgement of Pluto in our societal knowledge. So we're going to start off in... Oh, I have the wrong notes up. Uh-oh. We're going to start off in 1849. Um, this is when, I believe, a, a Frenchman... Urban Le Vier, because it sounds French. <laughs> How do you say it, Mike? How do you say it? Correct me. Urban Le Vier. Urban Le That's Italian, Liz. Well, well, you, have, you have the Italian You know what? They're the same thing. Right I know. It's the same with French. <laughs> but it's like, well, how, do you, how do you pronounce Perrier? The, oh, Verrier. It's Verrier. Urban Le Verrier. I did it. Yeah. By the way, French words may end in a consonant, but they aren't. That sound is not produced. A. Ends (laughs) in an A. Every French word is like A. Urban Le Verrier. But yes, Mr. Frenchman Urban. um, Le Verrier. He, in 1842, discovered Neptune, not with a telescope, uh, but with math and physics and witchcraft. Um, He he was able to deduce where this planet... (laughs) There was, was no witchcraft. Do Don't do that. Don't no, do there was that. no witchcraft. All right. Is math well, math okay. is kind of like witchcraft. No one knows how it really works. It oh, just does. But we do. You don't know. You it's like, it's, a, it's of, like the tides. They just, just work. A bunch of squiggly lines. You don't know there. how it works. There's a difference. Lines <laughs> and weird Greek letters. Oh, it's true. Okay, continue, but, Brandon. But Urban, I'm going to just call him Urban here and now. Urban not knew uh, math. No, not Carl. He's my boy. Uh, but Urban here, uh, he, he knew mass physics, and so he was able to deduce where a planet would be just based off the orbit of Uranus. 
And so in 1842, he said, this is where plant's going to be. Somebody go find it. And indeed, they did. So he discovered Neptune that way with just math and physics. That's how science works. Well, he was, yeah, he was, he was looking at Neptune's orbit and realized something's not quite right. It looks as if something is tugging. There's some kind of gravity going on. So maybe there's another planet beyond Neptune that's tugging on this gravity, making it have this wonky orbit. So that kind of hit off the search for the potential ninth planet. It's a little iffy. We'll, we'll talk about why that was iffy later on. Now we're going to uh, go forward a little bit to the 1900s with Percival Lowell. Uh, Percival Lowell. Oh, Liz has a face. She wants to say something. Oh, no. It was just like, yay, Lowell. Because Lowell Observatory <laughs> and Flagstaff. Exactly. We'll get there in just a moment. But Percival Lowell was part of the Boston Lowell family. And this was an insanely wealthy, well-connected family. They are called the Boston Lowells. And one of the taglines they had for each other, or I guess in Boston in general, it was Boston being home to the bean and the cod, where Lowell's talked to only the Cabots, while Cabots spoke only to God. So you're Wait, talking about the hierarchy wow. of families there. Were you saying yeah. cabbage or Cabots? It's right Cabots, there in the, the family outline. Cabots. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm not reading the notes. I'm, I'm listening to Brandon. Maybe they're very esoteric and they believe talking to earthly things like cabbages can speak to God Maybe. for them. Maybe. Cabbage Patch Kids. Maybe. No, it, it, was, it was the Cabots, a richer family than the Lowell's. Okay. Uh, but to give you an idea of these Lowell people and their connections, uh, Percival Lowell's brother was a president of Harvard for like 30 years. Right. And his sister married uh, one of the Roosevelt's. Okay. So uh, high society yeah. right so, here. Yeah. It's like, it's like the Kennedys, Money. basically. Uh, but Percival Lowell was the kind of the outcast, the crazy child. Because uh, he he caught winds of this idea of canales on Mars. Canales. Uh, canales. There you canales. go. That's the right fingers. Uh, it, because these, in one oh, sentence, what is that? The canale? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is canals on Mars. That was the idea. That, that's what at least Percival Lowell thought it as. But it turns out the translation of canales doesn't actually mean canals. <laughs> All right. Look it uh, up, but, everybody. Yeah, just look it up. Uh, but Percival Lowell caught wind of that and thought canals on Mars, how canals have to be made by someone. There are things uh, living on Mars. There are Martians on Mars. Alien. Let's go find them, folks. Life on Mars. So, the, yeah. so that was his first big interest in astronomy was these canales, these canals on Mars. But also he latched on to the Planet X idea, this planet beyond Mars that uh, Mr. Urban talked about back 100 years ago. Well, not, I guess it had been like 50 years ago at this point. So those were his two big astronomy kicks. So he wanted to go find it. And of course, being insanely rich and wealthy, he had all the means in the world to do so. Um, what, what, I did stick a quote in here. I know we have Brandon quotes. Uh, but this is what, <laughs> right? This is one of the coolest quotes I found by him. All right, um, we're ready for let's it. Keep, him, keep, keep in mind that later on, um, after he passed away, he was essentially mocked for the idea of canals on Mars and that he's kind of made into this general joke while still contributing huge amounts of science with the Lowell Observatory. Uh, so this quote goes, Imagination is as vital to any advance in science as learning and precision are essential for starting points. Let me warn you to be aware of two opposing errors, of letting your imagination soar unbalanced by facts, but on the other hand, of shackling it so solidly that it loses all incentive to rise. Wow. Which is a cool quote. Yeah, so it's, you know... Go crazy with the imagination, but let it be rooted in some facts. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is really cool. Uh, so 
just thinking to the idea of these canals on Mars, there is proof to him that there are these lines, these etchings on this red planet. So there's base in some fact, but he's letting his imagination carry a scientific pursuit, mm. which I think is just super cool. To put it eloquently, it, it cool. is neat. You need some imagination. We've discussed Absolutely. imagination in many episodes before. So you need imagination. You do. You do. Exactly. It's yeah. like, you know... We, we're not going to have teleporters in the future if we don't have imagination. Yeah, but... Well, uh, teleporters are death traps, number one. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously. But just on a deeper level, I guess. Phil- more so philosophical level. I don't know the right terminology for this, but okay. imagination lets you just see different views of things. That's true. And so, um, so there's this thing in physics where if you haven't produced your theory by... 30 years old you're not gonna oh, do it yeah um and it's and it's because the older we get the harder we we get to we can't imagine very well yeah exactly. Brandon, the more we fall Brandon, back you still have time you still have I got, time oh my god I like 10 months to get a Nobel prize in physics do it for 60. the rest of Let's us do this. good luck man good luck <laughs> i got you thank you i would i would say i'd work the math for you but uh oh, do the math at this point I can do tips. All right. That's all I can do. Just, yeah. Just the tips. Just the all tips. right. Moving on. So that was the canals on Mars and the search of Planet X. And, of course, Percival Lowell being insanely wealthy, he hired people to go across the country and said, find me a good spot to put an observatory, to put a big old telescope up there. And that's when they came across Flagstaff, Arizona. Woo. And this was in... Woo woo, Arizona. Uh, so this was in 1900. The population there was... 1,271 people. And Flagstaff is kind of spreadish out. So I'd imagine it's not so much a population in 1900 as much of it is people happen to be in the general area at the time. <laughs> but just kind of count them. Yeah, there's, there's that many people just here. There. Uh, but uh, Flagstaff, Arizona is has a really high elevation, so there's less atmosphere to deal with. It's, what, like 6,000 feet? It's over a mile, I know that much. Sure, it's it's uh, up there, which is yeah, yeah, a good place to put. So it's up there. there, yeah. There's not much atmosphere to deal Over. with, and there only being a thousand people, there's no light at night. So go ahead. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened in 1896. They ordered the first telescope to be built in Little Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And fun fact: 19, 1896. Uh, that was just two years before War of the Worlds. So this was all culturally relevant at the time. Ah, mm. yes. Yeah. War of the Worlds. Uh, that's when it was at first published, not the big radio broadcast. Okay. Of well, the yeah, 30s. That was, yeah. There wasn't radio in 1898. Good book. Everybody should read it. It's really fun. Uh, the BBC is coming out with a miniseries about it. Oh, not about it, but actually like a more real reenactment than the Tom Cruise version. Oh. So that's going to be exciting. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, Percival Lowell, however, ended up dying in 1916, kind of of an early death. And for the next 10 years after that, uh, Constance, who was Percival's wife, kind of tied up the observatory and all these lawsuits with the heritage and naming and things like that. So nothing really happened for 10 years. Mm. Um, But the Lowell Observatory itself, besides, we'll get to Pluto in a moment, besides that, uh, they have a number of really neat discoveries. So much so that Time Magazine in 2006 named it uh, one of the world's most 100 influential places. Oh, nice. Wow. Which is cool, yeah. Nice. Uh, one of the big ones for us is um, it helped us, or it didn't help, it did discover uh, Redshift of Galaxies by Vesto Slipher. And that led to the fact that the universe is expanding with Hubble. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yep, that means um, that the galaxies, the redshift is that we can see them moving away from us. Yes, the exactly. So everything's moving away. But mm-hmm. in your everyday experience, it, it's uh, think of the sound of uh, a Doppler effect. Yeah, the so ambulance like a, or a police car yeah. is higher pitch coming towards you, lower pitch lower moving pitch, away. So it's like that. Mm-hmm. The wavelengths are stretched. Yep. So it uh, discovered the redshift, uh, or at least the galaxies are redshifting. Uh, it was a co-discovery of the rings of Uranus in 1977. Oh, nice. Uh, it, yeah, it found the three largest known stars, uh, the atmosphere of Pluto, uh, some of the orbits of Nixon Hydra, two of the moons of Pluto, uh, carbon dioxide ice on a couple of moons, and um, evidence that the atmosphere of the exoplanet contains water vapor. Wow, all that so out of it's, it, observatory? Yeah, it's been a part of some really neat things. Jeez. Yeah, it's still, so if you it's still an active... I mean, yeah, they well, have the, uh, yeah. where we yeah. go, but um, it's still right. an active the, observatory. Yeah, and they have the Discovery Telescope out there now doing some work, mm-hmm. so it's it's active and really great. Uh, so if you're in Arizona, go check it out. It's neat. Totally worth it. Mm-hmm. So enter the next figure in our story, Liz's drink, Yay! Clyde Tomba. I drank them all already. <laughs> all oh, you gone. did? Uh, well, uh, we can, uh, well, you need to leave here in a moment. Well, we'll, we'll break So it Clyde Tomba. Uh, he was born in 1906, uh, just a few years after the Wright brothers made the first flights. Uh, he was born in Illinois, and he showed some interest in astronomy as a young kid, probably because his uncle was an astronomer, so that kind of oh, made sense. And so in his late teens, early 20s, he made his own telescope, which is super cool. Uh, and through his own homemade telescope, he drew pictures of Mars and the moon. And knowing about Little Observatory, he you know, put them in the mail, sent them to him, and said, hey, what do you think about this? Uh, can I get some feedback? Yada, yada, yada. And Little Observatory sent the 23-year-old Clyde Tomba a letter back saying, you want to work for us? If only it was that easy. <laughs> well, right? hey, NASA, like, here's I am, some drawings I made. Um, <laughs> um, they're, in, they're in crayon, but I think you'll like them. <laughs> I think they're fairly accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he just e- he emailed. He uh, <laughs> mailed. <laughs> Millennial wow! culture. The technology they had way back then. Who knew? Yeah, he ma- mailed Love Observatory's drawings and got a job out of it. And uh, another fun quote by Tomba is about astronomy. And it goes, well, the work was tedious, but it was much more interesting than farming, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I can see and that. If you ever, yeah, if, if you ever listen to his interviews or go read his interviews... He's very Midwestern. He's like, yeah, I found Pluto. It's uh, about what we thought it would roughly be. It uh, turns out it wasn't the planet we were looking for, but I'm very glad it happened. <laughs> wow. It's, yeah, it's like, oh, this guy. I like wow. it all. Thank you. Just... Mm-hmm. Hey, we weren't looking is. for it, but... But we, but we found it, we'll, so... We'll take it. Neat. Uh, so he was working with the big telescopes in the Observatory, and one of the big developments in astronomy that helped him was called the Blink Microscope. And the Blink Microscope, uh, okay, so we're going to go back here a little bit. When you're looking for new planets in observatories, you can't just stick your eye in there and go, that's a planet right there, I can see it because it's waving at me. <laughs> uh, hello! As, as, right? Hello hey, there! Especially, especially, yeah. Especially with a planet that's beyond the orbit of Neptune, that's so far yeah. away uh, that you're not going to see the rings like Saturn or the moons around Jupiter. It's going to be a faint point of light at a very small magnitude. It's a very small brightness. So how are you doing, so Brandon? You have to, 
Exactly. So what you have to do is take picture night after night after night and just look in the background and see if any of those points of light are moving. Moves, right. And if and if they do move, you have to go through the catalog of all known asteroids oh, and objects wow. to make sure is this new or is this known. So imagine doing this for years before the, the tedium. Before computers. Yeah, this is all by Just himself with his blink microscope. A book. And that's and and this is where the blink microscope helps because uh, this helped determine the magnitude of stars relative to others in the background. So it kind of helped them see as they were moving through it, if anything jumped or anything moved. Check a catalog. Do we know it? Hey, it's something new. So you discover a lot of comets and asteroids that way. And, and by the way, well, at Lowell Observatory, they actually have where you can look at it. So you can actually see in the huh. blink microscope. Um, telescope? Microscope. The blink oh, the micro- microscope. Oh, microscope. Um, you, you can actually look in one and actually you'll, you'll, see, you'll see Pluto jump. It's the Pluto picture. Oh, I remember. Oh, that's well, cool. I remember doing yep. that. I remember looking at that. Okay. But they they call it like the blink comparator or something. It's it's but the blink microscope. <laughs> All right. So now with that blink microscope, <laughs> the, this is the only time where um you know if you blink you will see it. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. if you blink you'll miss or it. Or if you miss it. But now clever. if you blink you'll see it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Blake Microscope. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, eye technology. All right. So, Mr. Tomba here, not doctor at this time, Mr. Just Tomba. Just Mr. Who, who is 24 years old discovering fucking planets. God damn it. Um, oh, what have we right. done with our lives? Nothing. We made, it, we made some podcasts. This is what we're doing for one person. Hey. <laughs> we're, 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 for, we're getting for drunk and talking about space. <laughs> I don't know if he's still on. He hasn't mentioned me in a while. I don't know. It, it's okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so we're going to fast forward now to January 21st, 1930. Clyde Tomba at the edge of this blink microscope doing it night after night. Um, he was uh, surveying this one small section in the sky in the Gemini uh, Twins constellation area. But there were really severe winds. It was, had some bad weather. Uh, and it made the plates unusable. So they couldn't go back and look at the plates at the blink microscope and check it out. It was completely unusable. Mm. Ugh. So instead, he had to go back on the 23rd and 29th and take those photographs. And turns out that was the best decision, possibly, of his life. Unless he really loves his wife and considers that better. Um, so possibly, this was the best decision of his, uh, of his life. Uh, because those two plates on the 23rd and 29th found a flicker of a change. Oh, wow. Something's out there. Something's out there. And because he had this catalog, he knew nothing would be in his part of the sky. He was able to say... Eureka, that's it, and which is super cool because typically with discoveries you don't get Eureka. You got oh, that's weird, and then you go back and figure <laughs> it out and see exactly what it was. So, but he knew that, his, that this was is that his actual quote, Eureka. No, that's his, that's it. No, it's not Eureka. The quote is quote that's it. Unquote. <laughs> All right, I like um, it. I, did, I well hey, because I am it. me. I. I do have a longer quote if you wanted to get technical as to what he thought at the time. Do we want a longer quote? Yeah, go for it. Longer quote by Clyde Tomba is right after he found this flicker of a change. A terrific thrill came over me. I switched the shutter back and forth, studying the images. For the next 45 minutes or so, I was in the most excited state of mind of my life. I had to check further to be absolutely sure. I measured its shift with a metric rule to be 3.5 millimeters. Then I replaced one of the plates with a tw- 21st January plates. 
Almost instantly, I found the image. 1.2 millimeters east of the 23 January position, perfectly consistent with the shift of the six-day interval on the discovery pair. Now I felt 100% sure. Uh, that was late January, um, February, oh, rough. yeah, and then and March 13th, after they confirmed it multiple times, they went public, and March 13th also happened to be Percival Lowell's birthday, had he still been alive, he would have been 74, and also uh, the anniversary of the discovery of Uranus. Hey! So it all came together. Yeah, I'd also like to just point out for people listening, um, or watching, listening primarily, uh, notice how we are all pronouncing Uranus. <laughs> it is Uranus. And that's cool. all I will say on that point. <laughs> Don't want to be an ass about it. <laughs> uh, do we want to take a quick break or just keep going through the names and the voyages to Pluto? Because I know somebody needs more drinks. And I do need a new drink. Action. So let's go ahead and let's take a, uh, a quick break. And uh, right. we'll be back in, uh, in a bit. So as a quick recap, we just talked about Pluto, um, its discovery by Clyde Tombaugh with the help of Percival Lowell and uh, Mr. Urban. And now we're going to talk about, really quick, the naming of Pluto, because it was a big competition. We have all these classically awesome names, Mercury, Mercury's Venus, already Mars, a thing. God of War. No, I, no, no, I'm saying, okay. I'm just recapping oh. the planets, because they have really cool <laughs> okay, names. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> So we got to make sure that this newest planet at the time has a b- name befitting the ninth planet in the solar system, the last mm. planet. So overall, uh, this competition consisted of over 1,000 names. And I have ch- I tried for legitimately, legitimately an hour today to find that list of names so I can try to wrap them, uh, but I couldn't. Oh, it's, but that's I, I, really disappointing. I know. Why you tease us with that? <laughs> I've been so excited. I know. I got, I got like seven. Uh, they, they range from... Kronos, Zeus, Tomboy, after Tomba, Tomboy, which was weird. Electricity, because that was new. <laughs> uh, Minerva, Osiris, Juno, Atlas, Persephone, Zixmol. Zixmol. And Zixmol, because it is the last word in the dictionary. It sounds like uh, a prescription medicine. What does it mean? Zixmol. I have no idea. Uh, but it also sounds like something from Scientology. Um, <laughs> it, it does. The Zixmol is in your bloodstream. Zixmol Xenon's brother, whatever. That, yeah, that could do it. I think strange cousin or something. Uh, and, and then Percival Lowell. And with that, oh, we what? just got on Scientology's radar. Bring it. Oh, we've been, we've been there for years. <laughs> yeah. They're going to they're gonna be filming us outside of our house. They're going to shoot Thadons at us. Take them and their Thadons. I'll go or... out there and film them. Fuck them. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Percival Lowell's widow, Constance, at first wanted the planet called Percival, and then she wanted it called Lowell, and then, for whatever reason, she wanted it called Constance after her. Of course, uh, I mean. <laughs> of course, yeah. So there, there, there was some financial issues there, because the estate was still funding the observatory and things like that. Uh, but in the end, the name came from an 11-year-old girl in England. Oh. Vanessa Burney. Vanessa Burney. Is that it? Was that that was bad? That was a bad English. Well, I also know. I also don't know if it's a Vanessa. It's it looks like Venetia. Venetia. Wait, did, did uh, you do that in an Italian accent? I was trying to be British, but it did not translate. Say, okay, wait, wait. Just, say say Emily say Emily Watson to get in the Hello, I'm Emily. 
Emily Watson. All right, now go with it. Now's- I'm <laughs> Venetia Burney. I'm Vanessa Burney. That's acceptable. Okay. And okay, I yeah. declare this planet uh, to be Pluto. When, when you hooray, when you don't speak with your hands. It works better for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I'm doing accent. Italian, and then I need my one hand. Because they can go all Italian hand. on it. <laughs> de Peppo. Buca de Peppo. Buca. So Vanessa, Vanessa V, uh, she talked to her uncle. Say, hey, it should be Pluto because of the god of the underworld. He's things like that. Okay, so his uncle sent it in. Makes sense. And the rest is history. It, it is Pluto. Uh, and and she, V actually did get... Uh, at the time, what forty pounds, which is like four hundred fifty dollars. It's like, hey, here you go. That's nice. Thanks. That's a, I mean, that's which to eleven, which to eleven years to an eleven year old, a million dollars. That's a million bucks. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. can we pretend that it was named after Pluto the dog? No, we can't because Pluto the dog was named after Pluto the planet at the time. And besides, Disney has enough stuff. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's they have all my heroes. That's true. Except for one group, Star Trek. Wow, so Pluto the dog is named after the god of the underworld. Take a moment, just sink that in. And think about sinking it in, because one of its moons is called Sharon, who is the, uh, what do you want to call it, the boat driver. <laughs> There's <laughs> the a boat word driver. for this. But the, the boat the driver. Ferryman. The ferryman. The ferryman. The ferryman. The Thank you. I'm glad the you pronounced of it. The underworld. You found you the pronunciation. The I didn't know how it was pronounced. Sharon, Charon, Charon, I, Karen. I think you can do either one. Yeah, but the, the guy who uh, discovered Sharon officially calls it Sharon. Uh, not technically after his wife. At first he wanted to call it Oz. It would be kind of like Pluto and Oz. It would kind of be kind of cool. Um, or Persephone, but Persephone was already an asteroid this time. Uh, so in the dead of night one night, he woke up and just found Karen in the dictionary, sorry, sure. Sharon in the dictionary somehow and saw, yeah, this makes sense. The boatman that sails across the river Hades. Cool. And that was that. He went back to bed. Nice. The quote, sorry, the quote, the quote is, um, I said, okay, and I staggered back to bed. <laughs> I like that. That you is the quote. You gotta make sure he's staggering. He can't just be walking normally back <laughs> uh-huh. to bed. He's gotta stagger back to bed. <clears throat> Right, so now that Pluto officially has a name, uh, we got to figure out what's going on there. So this is when the study of Pluto starts to begin, is once you know it's there, let's go look at it. So at first, in 1915, it was estimated that this planet X would have the mass of seven so Earths. Than Earth. Mass, massive Or at least more massive. massive planet. Right, because it's tugging at the gravity of Neptune. And Remember, how can something small tug at such a place. giant gas giant's gravity? Exactly. Right, right. Uh, fast forward to 1931. Well, now it's about one Earth mass. All right. 1948, 0.1. 1976, 0.01. 1978, 0.0015. And 2006, 0.0021. Uh, so it turns out that this massive planet that Urban was looking for, that Percival Lowe was looking for, well, Pluto wasn't it. Because mm-hmm. the mass of... 0.00218 Earth masses it's, is not nearly not. enough mass to create the tug on Neptune's orbit to make it weird. Uh, so Pluto was not Planet X. Uh, they just happened to find it, and it was a happy coincidence. Coincidence? A uh, coincidence. A happenstance <laughs> okay. or coincidence? A ca- coincidence. Like coincidence. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into it, kind of. It uh, really dropped mass oh, go ahead. quickly. 
It did. Like, I would love to be on a diet, guys. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to drop I, that amount of scary. masses. I would like to just go from just like any mass I can drop. I'll just do that. Yeah. Like point one mic mass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can stand to lose point one mic masses. <laughs> oh man. All right. Now I, I, we're going to try to go through this next part quick because we actually haven't even talked about. Pluto I know it's the meat of the stuff. <laughs> this has just been planetary foreplay. That's what this has been. A planetary foreplay. I love that phrase so much. <laughs> That's the title. All right. Pluto, a planetary, planetary foreplay. foreplay. <laughs> oh, I'm so You know that. what? That actually is what Pluto is. He is basically, it is basically oh. planetary foreplay. <laughs> what, a, what a tease, Pluto. <laughs> Jeez. But now it's a dwarf planet. So what, what did you call that, it's, Brandon? No, oh, it was, was a kink. It, it was... Dwarf, a kink. It's dwarf, like dwarf planet foreplay. foreplay. Dwarf planet foreplay? Is Which is a kink. Is a kink. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very small fetish. Um, <laughs> oh, God. We're going to go now to the late 1980s. There is a group of grad students and postdocs and planetary scientists, and they're calling themselves the Pluto Underground. The Pluto Underground? Which is super cool. And they, they call themselves the Pluto Underground. I want that before, band name. It's not too late. Because uh, before this, uh, you had the Mars underground, the big movement to go explore Mars, and they got the job done. So now you had the Pluto underground, a bunch of young people before probably the age of 30, because that's, I guess, when you make your biggest discoveries. Yeah, once you hit 30, you're done with your it's life. It's game over. Yeah. Game, I guess. game over, man. It's game over. Game over. A few months to live. So the Pluto underground decided, let's go to Pluto. Let's figure this out. Uh, but the issue was they had to arrive before 2020. Because Pluto has a really strange orbit. Um, it's not on the same plane as the rest of the solar system. So it's not like flat on the table. It's tilted. <laughs> um, and because it's tilted, the orbital arc um, acts in such a way where a lot of the surface, like Alaska in the winter, can go to perpetual darkness for like 100 years, Earth time. So number one, you had to get there because the orbital arc is going to plunge Pluto into eternal darkness. Uh, number two, Pluto's atmosphere, which we knew it had at the time, was going to freeze after 2020. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, the Ju- Jupiter gravity assist. So when you have a spacecraft, you get it in Jupiter's gravity well and fling it around the planet to make mm-hmm. it go faster. Slingshot. Uh, yeah, slingshot. Yeah, the orbital dynamics wouldn't work after that. So it actually, it absolutely had to be there before 2020. What's meant launching it like 10 years beforehand because Pluto is really far away. So that leads us to the first real attempt to get to Pluto called Pluto 350. This was 1990. Uh, the idea here, what, well, you, have a, you have a look on your face. Why 350? That's a good question, Liz. <laughs> so it's called Pluto 350 because that was the weight of the spacecraft, 350 <laughs> kilograms. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So can we? All right. All right. <laughs> and that was, that, that was chosen because it was half the weight of Voyager. Uh, because just nobody to, knows was, what Voyager weighs. I like how Voyager gets the name. Seven hundred kilograms. And Pluto, 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 three fifty. But Pluto, uh, Pluto, uh, Voyager had just passed Neptune. What two years ago at this time? Nineteen eighty-eight, I think it passed mm-hmm. Neptune. Yeah, so uh, Voyager was still very much in the conscious mind of astronomers at the time. So. Pluto 350 was going to finish the job of Voyagers and go see this last planet. Uh, but, of course, uh, things went wrong. 
and it never actually occurred. Uh, fast forward to 1992, you had Pluto Fast Flyby, and this is JPL's attempt. Uh, so JPL, yeah, I know, they're very imaginative at the time. Pluto, <laughs> Pluto Fast Flyby. Fast flyby. <laughs> that, that's, it's going to go fly Pluto really fast. Uh, so this is JPL's attempt. I'm trying to go fast to get this part through. Uh, JPL comes in, and they really didn't know about Pluto 350, so they kind of made their own thing. And the idea here was to take essentially these CubeSats, uh, little tiny satellites that weighed 35 kilograms. And it's Pluto 35. Them, yeah, Pluto 35. <laughs> and send them really fast to Pluto. Uh, and the idea here was that it would cost less, uh, the schedule would be much shorter because they were either much smaller. Uh, but then they had the issue of stacking all this new technology on there. So over time, the technology just grew schedule and cost, and it's no longer 35 kilograms. It's like 700 kilograms, and it costs $2.3 billion, which is an issue. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that, that was with launch and everything like that. Uh, but also, um, b- back before it was billions of dollars, uh, the NASA administrator, I think it was Dan Golden at the time, um, he said... You have to launch this mission under $400 million, and that includes launch vehicles. And launch vehicle for missions are expensive, yeah. like $600, $400 million. So that in itself is the cost of a launch. So Alan, <laughs> so, so Alan Stern, who's a name we're going to bring up quite a we'll bit here. We'll come back to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Alan Stern kind of went rogue. Um, he jumped on the plane to Moscow without not NASA's consent and talked to the Russian space agency oh. and says, and goes, Russia, I know y'all just collapsed the Soviet Union, but we got, I got this really cool plan. I want to get to Pluto, but we want to use a Russian rocket. So that way we can work together to get to Pluto and the reduced cost. And so the Russians lean back and go, yeah, which means no. <laughs> which means no, folks. I am or cultured. Or does it mean not yeah. yet? Not yet. Well, condensed. true. Yet. It kind of does mean not yet because they had a condition. The condition was they would attach an atmospheric probe to uh, this Pluto flyby. So as Pluto, as this spacecraft is flying by Pluto, they would detach and go through the atmosphere of Pluto. So Russia would kind of get more credit. But hey, we're at Pluto. Let's go I do mean, it. That'd be pretty cool. It would be super cool. That would have been awesome. So he he kind of has his handshake deal. He comes back to NASA. NASA goes, "Okay, you did a good job. Way not to commit treason." Uh, which is also an issue of today. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, but then some of the requirements ended up falling through. Uh, so ner- the spacecraft would have been nuclear-powered with little tiny RTGs, little tiny radioactive balls that give off heat that create energy. Um, and it turns out putting radioactive material on top of a Russian rocket was an issue. And so the U.S. <laughs> government said, no, that's not going to happen. So that was canceled. <laughs> I can see that. I can see, yeah. yeah. So you know, pretty solid maybe reasoning. if we were better friends, um, <laughs> instead of more, like, uh, frenemies as we have been. <laughs> yeah. So that was the uh, Pluto Fast Flyby. Well, finally, we get to some names that sound less bad. Uh, the <laughs> Less bad. Not not good. Okay. Still less bad. I'm ready the for P- it. I'm excited. Pluto, the Pluto Kuiper Express. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> the PKE sounds like Hogwarts. The Pike. What's the, the Pike? Hog- the Pike. Pluto Planet. The Express. Hogwarts Express. Piper yeah, Express. Hogwarts Express. Uh-huh. Hogwarts, but there yeah. are no, but there are no chocolate frogs on this one. Oh, boo. Yeah. Well, that's uh, so, so the resurgence here was because 
astronomers were discovering more Kuiper Belt objects, asteroids, comets in the Kuiper Belt, the region around Pluto's ish orbit. And so there was a resurgence in interest. So, okay, let's try this again. So Alan Stern, this time, brought on the legendary Gene Shoemaker. And if you're a fan of astronomy, you know Shoemaker from Shoemaker, Shoemaker Levy 9. Levy 9. Yeah, what was that? That was really the quick. comet. That was a was a comet that hit Jupiter. It did broke up in and it broke parts. up in different parts, and we saw the impacts in its atmosphere. Yep, yep, yep. So Shoemaker is this legend in the field. So you get him on your team, you're doing much better. Uh, but for various reasons, uh, a lot of it due to the radioactive or the sorry the uh, radiation protection requirements uh, that NASA had JPL put on. The cost again balloons because mm. when you want to harden these objects with ra- with radiation. Um, protection you're going to balloon the cost and also the weights and that increases the schedule and which is weird because you didn't necessarily need that radiation protection in the Alice solar system because you're not getting that close to jupiter uh so in the book chasing new horizons alan stern kind of says well we think that was jpl and nasa's kind of cutting the putting the kibosh on this pluto mission it's just loaded up with radiation protection and it'll be canceled Lo and behold, the price ballooned to $1.5 billion, and it was canned. I mean, that's not bad. $1.5 billion? Well, that was also 1998 money. Okay. Which oh. is probably about $2.3 billion now. All right. Ish. Yeah, it was, what, $2.4 billion for um, uh, Curiosity? Sure. Mars, I think it was. Sure. Like sure. the whole mission? That's about, you know. Yeah. Cassini was in the billions. Cassini was a huge cost overrun. It was lucky it didn't get canceled. James Webb's in the billions. Well, it's and James Webb would not be canceled. Oh, it it, it better not be canceled. All right, it's not. By this time, it's good. James Webb, people, you're good. So that was 1998, and looks like interest died down. But then all of a sudden, we had two events happen. Number one is Ted Nichols. Ted Nichols was a 17 year old kid who went on this crusade for Pluto by himself. Like nobody contacted him to do this. He just started up this social media campaign Wait, before social media was a thing. I was going to say, what year is this? What year is it? This was uh, 2000-ish? Maybe 1999? There was no social media at all. No. A- AOL. AOL. <laughs> uh, he went on all those a- He went on all, all the chat, bo- uh, <laughs> chat rooms. Chat rooms. And, uh, uh, a- a- hey, I want to go to Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <Drink>. a drink. <laughs> But he drummed up interest, and also at the same time, the Planetary Society, um, they got 10,000 letters from the public and delivered them on the doorstep to Congress. So you have this 17-year-old kid who literally marched up to NASA headquarters with the press right behind him and said, hey, why not Pluto? And then you have these 10,000 letters, so interest again got going in Pluto. And that's when an open competition began in the year 2000. They had three months to build a proposal for the first selection. And as they're getting as they're getting going, right away it's it's uh, canceled. <sighs> That's until uh, Senator Barbara Mikulski, who was like the saint of astronomy, <coughs> stepped in to revive it. Bless you, Liz. Thank you. So this competition this started the back podcast. up. <laughs> We're recording this. Yeah, well, there's gonna be a sneeze in it. I can see. And we, tr- and we now have to now. have a sneezing drinking game. Uh, no. <laughs> That'd be good though. Continue, Brandon. Yeah. So I'm trying to go fast because history is fascinating, but also takes a while because it's history. Uh, <laughs> there's so, a lot of it. There's a, a lot, lot of, history, of history, guys, to talk about. But yeah, oh yeah. So uh, <laughs> this open competition was eventually down-selected to two 
uh, groups between APL, uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory. I was going to say, Baltimore. I've never heard of APL, and I think it's hilarious that there's an APL and a JPL, and I want to call APL Apple. <laughs> well, well, Apple, as it comes, it was more defense, but also had one really successful uh, interplanetary uh, mission called NEAR, which is two uh, near-Earth object asteroids. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it was super impressive because it came in under cost, and ahead of schedule, which is just mind-blowing in the space industry. Wow. So APL, even though they're kind of new kids on the block compared to JPL in space, they had the good graces already. Hmm. So you had the one-on-one, APL, the new kids on the block, and JPL, these legendary missions, these incredible staff that go head-to-head. And as these two teams are kind of duking it out in the, process, in the proposal stage, all of a sudden, 9-11. Oh, oh, right? All Fucks things everything up. Goddamn 9-11. So, so APL had to be closed down because they were really close to D.C., up in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did get a couple weeks extension to go finish the proposal in a different laboratory. So you can imagine if you have essentially years of work crammed in this tiny office, into this general office, and all of a sudden had to relocate to finish the project with two weeks left. Imagine that stress. The terrorists That's did not insane. think about everybody that would be affected by this. They didn't think about the space missions. Wow. No, clearly they did not. God, what jerks. We just want scientific proof. Jeez. Uh, but at the end of the day, APL won out. And APL's team, when they got the call, happened to be in New Orleans. And according to the book, they all got shit-faced in Bourbon Street. <laughs> I mean, I would. Uh, yeah, that's legitimate. Yeah. So <laughs> with, with, with this history of Pluto missions being canceled and changed, literally the first thing that happens, like three months into it, is it's canceled due to cost overruns. Yeah. Which is crazy, because I haven't started, and there were no cost overruns. <laughs> what? So this was either a couple things. Either the Bush administration saw this Pluto mission and thought it was a prior Pluto mission that was over budget, or it was a conspiracy theory and JPL kind of leaned politically and said, cancel this mission because uh. we want it. Uh. But then what happens? The patron saint of astronomy, Barbara Mikulski, steps in. She gets it taken care of. And long story short, eventually it gets top priority in the decadal survey, and they get the go-ahead to launch. And the very last window in 2006 to get there before the atmosphere freezes over, and we all live happily ever after. Because now, we actually get to talk about what New Horizons (gasps) found, and Pluto itself! Wait, you didn't even introduce New Horizons! I didn't! Oh my god, so New Horizons (laughs) is number one. Sorry, New Horizons is, of course, the mission uh, of APL that was chosen to go to Pluto. And unlike uh, the naming process of Pluto, New Horizons was thought of the name uh, by Alan Stern. He was kind of throwing all these different names around with his team because he needed something great. It is a good name. Um, so the first name was like, no, not the first name, but the second to the last name was New Frontiers. Mm. Uh, but that has political connotation with yeah. the Kennedy administration in the 60s. Yeah. Well, it has so a lot was, of historical background with it does. frontiers in this country. Yeah. Also, Frontiers from Van Ever Bush, who does science policy, but that's a different podcast. Uh, so he was driving home in Colorado, and as he says, he looked at the Rocky Mountains with the sun setting and saw the horizon. He goes, wait a fucking minute! New horizons! <laughs> and he stuck with it. <laughs> was that an exact quote? I fucking knew it. New horizons. Yeah, that was a good <laughs> Uh, but New Horizons is very similar to Plu- to the original concept of Pluto 350. The same, very similar bus uh, construction of spacecraft, only a very limited amount of instruments that were already proven 
so you're not developing technology. And it flew off January 19th, 2006 mm-hmm. to go do the gravity assist from Jupiter, the slingshot, and zip out to the farthest reaches of the solar system. Amazing. Is it really the farthest no, reaches of the solar system? It's, it's, sorry, it's, it's, it's not. not the farthest reaches. It's not. If you want to be... <laughs> Technically correct. Well then, well, then that could be an issue because we think Voyager has left the solar system. But then, I mean, we talk about the Oort cloud. It still has like three thousand years to go. I thought it went. Pa- right. It went past the Oort cloud and. Kuiper like... Belt. No, well, no, the Oort cloud is like halfway between Helios. us and. Well, then the Oort cloud still in the solar system, yeah. Because it's like a hamster bubble of co- a hamster a hamster bubble. It's ha- it's still within it's, a, it's still within ha- the influence of the sun. Yeah, a hamster wheel. Yes, ha- hamster hamster wheel. That's what I was going for. Uh, a hamster ball. Hamster ball. Yeah, but I, I, you could make the argument that thought, Alpha Centauri is within thought, the gravitational influence of the sun. Is it not not like a planet well, is? No, but no. It still I thought feels... Voyager left the influence of the sun. Right. Isn't. The helium the solar in yeah. interstellar space. Okay, right. So, I, really quick, I think the difference there is that um, the number of what was it, solar wind particles from other stars outnumbers the sun's solar oh, okay, wind particles. Okay. Right. So That's that sun, was basically the, the, the dominant there. star in. There we go. Right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so now I think we can finally talk about Pluto. Now that I talked about for the last hour how we got to Pluto. And I zipped through the last part you really did. fast. You did. You did great. It was, a, it was the Pluto Express flyby. Hey, clever. <laughs> well done. Well done, Liz. Yeah. I can put my notes away and just listen to you guys talk. Yeah. Oh, no. Break those notes no, back that's, out. That's not how it works? No. We, uh, we're we're going we're gonna to all work on the same notes here, and at least on the outline. Okay. Anyway. Well, what's, what's next? New Horizons. New Horizons. So <laughs> we'll talk about New Horizons, but... Um, I'll actually come back to kind of what we know about Pluto in a moment, but um, the New Horizons spacecraft itself, um, um, like Brandon said, uh, Alan Stern had to lobby for it and um, eventually got the the funding for it. And we launched on January 19th, 2006 from Cape Canaveral on an Atlas V rocket. That was before I moved to Arizona. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, just personally, a personal milestone, <laughs> just for myself. I moved uh-huh. to Arizona in June of two thousand six. Okay. Okay, so. Fascinating. So, wow. <laughs> Liz is still in California at this time. <laughs> yes. California. Yeah. But will eventually make her way to Arizona. Yes, that's where I meet these two hooligans. So. I know, right? So, to me. Um, I, I guess when I think of spacecraft, I think of Cassini, which is this friggin' bus size object, school bus size object. Um, uh, New Horizons is actually kind of small. It's really only seven feet by seven feet by nine feet. Wow, it's really that small? Yeah. And weighs, uh, weighs about a thousand pounds. That's not. So more than 350 kilograms. Yes. Pluto 1000. <laughs> Yeah. Hey. So, um, yeah, so it's actually, it, it, it's much smaller um, than you think. God, and I just assumed all those satellites were just just Massive. I know, size. right? I know, right? Um, like I said, I always think of um, Cassini-sized objects when when I think of the spacecraft. But mm-hmm. Cassini is, I think it's more of an outlier. Mm. Um, but anyway, 
Um, it is the fifth spacecraft that actually it has the speed to leave the solar system. What's its speed, Mike? What's the speed? Um, I think it's like 36,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, I want to say 52,000 kilometers per hour. Anyway, that speed uh, will take um, New Horizons from New York to L.A. in four minutes. Oh, why can't we have that transportation? I want that. That would be nice. I want that for when we go visit your parents. Yeah, I want to get to your parents in a minute. In a minute? Just, hey. <laughs> well, see you in a minute. Then we and, literally are there in a minute. And then he can also leave really fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Argument starts happening at the dinner table. Just so we're out. <laughs> um, so, Brandon might actually be able to correct me on this, but um, at least for stabilization, um, it uses hydrazine, which was a drink we had hey. last time. Uh, uh, to stabilize it so that it can like point its cameras and right, stuff like right. that. That's like in the movies when you see those little splurts coming out of the spacecraft. It's like... Exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, but it uses pressurized helium uh, for other propulsion. So... Just right. so, <laughs> miscellaneous other. <laughs> and when you talk about other types of propulsion, uh, something that the New Horizons did to save cost, uh, as opposed to like... Uh, Cassini that has a swivel camera that can you know change its camera just on its bus. Uh, the New Horizons has to move its entire body to get pictures. So as it's passing Pluto and Ch- and Charon, it's constantly going back and forth, back and forth. Just just like that, Liz. Just like a <laughs> mind trying, yeah, trying to uphold the wall. My hands are the satellite dish. All right, so um, we just got a. Um, we just got a question. We just got a question from Twitch. It says, so, um, hi, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> um, is Pluto the biggest Kuiper Belt object? Also, that guy behind Brandon. 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 <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> He's random. He's random. Random guy behind Brandon. Is cute. So, for those of you listening to the podcast, um, since it's primarily been a listener uh, and audio format, uh, in all of these podcasts, because we Skype with each other, um, a cutout of Smeagol, also known as Gollum, uh, is behind Brandon's shoulder the whole time. Are there any other known aliases? <laughs> I don't know what his <laughs> Hobbit name was. <laughs> Smeagol. Oh, was that his Hobbit name? <laughs> Who's this? Of course, of course. Okay, just Smeagol Gollum. Smeagol slash Gollum. 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 Is it Sedna that they thought was bigger, but turns out is actually uh, well? They thought something was bigger than Pluto that we'll get into later. That then caused was it Alan Stern's ego? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Alan Stern's pretty awesome in general. Also, so it turns out Pluto is Pluto is the largest Kuiper Belt object, isn't it? Yeah, but I think so. Yeah, it was. There's one Eris. Well, wait, wait, wait. Shh. Uh. we'll talk about that. Spoilers. Hashtag spoilers. We're gonna okay. talk about that because it's gonna lead to some some controversy, some scandal. Scandal. That is still debated today. Oh wow, there really is no debate. Um. But anyway, so the power that, um, to make its power, um, uh, New Horizons uses the radioisotope 
thermoelectric generator. Um, Radio isotope thermoelectric generator. R yeah, like radioisotopic. T G. RTG. Yes. Okay. RTGs. They're they're like wonderful tiny blueberries that if you eat you die. Mm. Uh, but they're just the coolest things. But also I, I found out um, when you add RTGs to a spacecraft like Curiosity, for example, because Curiosity's RTG power, oh. it adds about 135 pounds of weight. Ooh, wow! Because it, it's not it's not just those tiny RTG balls. It's all the equipment you need right. to transfer the energy from oh, heat to wow. actual okay. energy. Yeah. So yeah. that's a lot. Um, so basically. Uh, for those who don't know, um, an RTG will take the heat from radioactive material and turn it into electricity. Okay. Thermoelectricity. There's no moving parts to these things. And so, yeah. Well, also, I, because this is fun, RTGs, I believe, are made out of plutonium. And plutonium is named after Pluto, so it all oh comes around. Oh my gosh, it's like Inception. It's Pluto Inception. Pluto Inception. Nice. Wow. All right, so... Um, <laughs> anyway. So it launched in 2006, and um, New Horizons is going so fast that in a year later, a month, uh, 13 months later, um, it passes by um, Jupiter. Oh, it's like, hey, So fast. Hey, yeah. Jupes. I mean, it literally is like, hey, and then then we're gone. Um, 1.4 million miles away from Jupiter. Use Jupiter as a gravity assist assist on out to um, Pluto. Um, But they also used it as an opportunity to check instruments. So it actually acquired data on the moon, the atmosphere, the magnetosphere of of Jupiter. Um, And then... It basically went to sleep. It's <laughs> it like, all right, I got right. a long journey well, ahead of me, so I'm going to well, take a nap. Well, a- actually, that, that was one of the big selling points in the Earth Horizons as well, because on the transition point from Earth to like, Saturn with Cassini, you still kept 450, pe- 450 people on staff, mm. whereas when you go to hibernation mode, you see the skeleton crew of like 50 people, which significantly saves costs. Yeah, that's true. Right, but it eventually it has to wake up. And it, it did. Um, right. A, a kiss from a prince. <laughs> yes. <laughs> only. Only by a kiss from a prince. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Go on. We're getting the good stuff. So on de- December 6th uh, of 2014, mm-hmm. New Horizons wakes wakes up. Um, it's taken out of hibernation. It's very exciting. Mode to, uh, for a Pluto flyby. Um, a month later, it really kind of gears up for it. Um, and then on July 14th, 2015, wait, 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 let's go back to July 4th. Oh, oh yes. July 4th. Yeah. You remember where you were at when you heard about it? I don't remember. I was in the planetarium. No, you were. I was probably in the planetarium. I wasn't? I thought I was. No, yes, you were. You were in the planetarium. (laughs) Okay. Thank God. (laughs) All right. What happened July 4th, Mike? Um, it, it goes into, um, sleep mode. Basically it, 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 it shuts down. It, it has, uh, there, there was, oh, Brandon wants to say. Go for it, Brandon. Oh no. I, I, I would put more context behind it. This project you've been working on for literally 25 years has gone to hibernation mode a fucking week before you get to Pluto. And you're like, oh shit. Like, no! 
everything's fucked. Everything is fucked. Right. So July fourth, the 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 uh, New Horizons goes into sleep mode, and on July seventh, they were able to get it back. Um, I that was a long three days. Look, New Horizons has been traveling a long distance. It just won a little power nap. All right, it's got it. Needs, just needed a little power nap as a refresher because it's got some real work to do. <laughs> it was sleeping for like ten years. Well, you know what? Man. You know when you wake up from sleep and you're really groggy and you're kind of like, oh, I just want to go back to bed. So it just did that. It just got a little extra. It just hit snooze, a little extra right. five minutes. It's back. But man. This is the day before the biggest moment of your life. Right. <laughs> you don't cook snooze, man. You're ready to go. Right. So it goes on July 4th. It goes into sleep mode. <laughs> and uh, you you know everybody's freaking out. Um, yeah. Cause you know you have the seven minutes of, of terror from Mars. This is like three days of terror <laughs> for the oh New Horizons crew. Um, you spend all these... Billions of dollars, millions, billions of dollars um, to get there. These many years, these mm-hmm. decades yeah. um, that people have dedicated their lives to get to Pluto. Oh, my God. And then 10 days before, hey, we're just going to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But on July 7th, they did get it back up. Um, and on July 14th, 2015... Was the closest approach to uh, to Pluto seven thousand eight hundred miles? It was so great. Oh my god! Oh, so and Brandon, uh, about the- where were you? Yeah. Oh, I was not technically in planetarium, but I was talking to people about Pluto, um, watching the live stream come in. And so every new picture that we got, I would just throw it up on the screen and go, "Let's talk about oh this for a while, guys." And Liz, so and like me, I was in the planetarium. Well, Liz, where were you? I was in the planetarium. There you were. What? You were in Maui. I was in Maui. We were in Maui. You were in Maui. What the fuck were you doing in Maui? <laughs> this is the biggest day of your life. Was I we Maui? were in Maui. <laughs> oh, were we? Oh, wait a minute. This is when like Mike was in like South Carolina. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I was in Maui. You were in South Carolina. Yep. We were. I, were, I wasn't. To our so listeners, for those of you, we were both in Maui because yeah. we worked together. Uh, also, if you're confused, I wasn't allowed to know they were together yet. <laughs> no, he didn't know. And he Somehow was totally this convinced. Somehow persisted even though I was lied Totally to. convinced that we were both in separate locations at the exact same time. But that's a side story to the main story of anyway. Pluto. Oh, no. This is the real oh, story. But, but when I got back to the planetarium... Oh, throwing the images of Pluto up on the oh dome was the most amazing thing. We, 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 remember, we, we had this 60-foot dome, and Liz got back, and she put the highest quality image she could find, and just covered the oh, entire sky God. with Pluto. It was, and it was the coolest that's, thing. We're past foreplay. We're into the porn. It's Pluto porn <laughs> oh, this all is Pluto over the porn. dome. It was beautiful. Yeah. And the reaction from the, from the audience members was... The, a, the audible gasps. Yes, they were blown oh. away. Because you have to remember that... You know, in the past, basically the highest resolution image of Pluto we had was like just this pixels. blurry, grainy, yeah. pixelated and that was image of, a, of two- a circle. <laughs> and that was still back in 2006, yeah. so fairly recent with the Hubble. And this is like, you know, the pictures we see of Mars. You know, you could see it, mountains, you could see details on the surface, and it was It becomes a real object. It becomes just not just this thing in your mind, oh, it's, it's Pluto. It's This is it's, real. It's like... 
Right, it's like seeing a sonogram versus an actual baby. Yeah, like Wait oh, a minute. this is, is an actual a real baby. <laughs> this isn't some mutant alien inside of me. Let's, let's love it forever and always. Yeah. So, what was what was the, what's the iconic picture of Pluto? Oh, of the heart. Of the heart. Of the heart. Tom Barbie. Right. Yeah. So if you if you if you Google Pluto and New Horizons. Inevitably, you're going to see the picture of of this heart shaped object on Pluto, mm-hmm. and I mean, in all honesty, to go from pixels in 2006, go from pixels, the circular pixelated thing, mm-hmm. to oh my god, I can see a, this heart shaped object, which by the way is the largest glacier in the entire solar system. Mm-hmm. Which is the size of Texas and Oklahoma combined. It Oklahoma. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't get too excited. I've seen live PD. I wouldn't get too excited. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but and mountains, plains, and craters. Pluto. Pluto comes an atmosphere. And, it, it and comes atmosphere. alive. It's this dynamic world it's not an object in our solar system it's a world in our solar system it's it's amazing it's but beautiful. it's even more dynamic because um if you look at the planes mm-hmm. of, of pluto um there's evidence or it looks like there is evidence for convection mm-hmm. which means that you might have a liquid water ocean up underneath this would it be liquid surface. water yeah, like, well, like an, like ice liquid. ice water okay. is ice water. It's kind of a combination. But at, at, at these temperatures, ice water is harder than any rock here on Earth. Right, but for yeah. um, if I understand correctly, for Pluto, there's actually water in it. Oh, I thought it was like a nitrogen. Actual water. Now for its moon, Sharon. Sharon. Or Sharon. however, however you it's want to Sharon. say it. Sharon. 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 Like like Ozzy would say. I was just gonna. I was I had that in my head the whole time. It's just Ozzy yelling, Sharon! And, and I stole it from you. you I did. stole your thunder. You did. So, um, like with um, Sharon Osbourne, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's solid ice in the middle. They think that um, there used to be some water, and now mm-hmm. it's, it's solid ice. But for Pluto, with that convection, though, Convection is an up and down movement, so you need to have something that's moving it. Uh-huh. Water. Possibly. Uh-huh. Possibly. So the internal structure of Pluto might be this rocky core, um, and then this kind of water, mainly ice, mix above it, and then, of course, the, the surface is solid ice. Mm-hmm. And then you have, of course, this very thin atmosphere around it. Um, but that's on the plains. There are there are craters mm-hmm. on on Pluto. There are mountains which are that rival the Rockies mm-hmm. in height. Um, does does it have um, cryovolcanoes? Oh, cryovolcanism. Does it? I don't. <laughs> I, I so I I don't know. Uh, I, I thought there was inklings that it could have some cryovolcanism. I think there were inklings, uh, but I don't know for sure, mm. so I'm not going to... Okay, so audience, maybe well, ice volcanoes is right, what that means. Possibly, but you know, what I've seen as far as like the, um, 
uh, like the, the plains, which is a very young surface. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, it, it looks like it's frozen nitrogen. Right. So there is, there is, there has been at least some resurfacing that has gone on. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, so when you say new surface, uh, you, you know that because number one, you look at the surface and it's not pockmarked full of craters. Mm-hmm. Like you go look at the moon, craters everywhere because the surface is extraordinarily old. Uh, whereas Pluto's surface with the, uh, in the plains, the Tomba Regio, they're estimating it at uh, below 100 million years old. Wow, right. that's Which is, yeah, and, it's very, and like, to quote NASA, the skin's still stretched out, its pores are small, it looks good. And to quote NASA, the degree of current activity on Pluto's surface and the youth of uh, some surface on Pluto were unexpected. Yeah. So, there were, oh, totally. There were, there's a lot that, you know, I, I mean, in all honesty, you, when you've explored Pluto, you, you're basically looking at pixels, mm-hmm. little square pixels. Mm-hmm. And so a lot. I think a lot of what they found was unexpected. Yeah, because I mean, well, that and that square, the, the previously our images of Pluto came from Hubble, correct? Yep. Because that was the most powerful telescope that we've had because it's in space to capture images of Pluto. We haven't ever had anything out as far as Pluto, or, or 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 I should say, to fly by close to Pluto to get high right. resolution images. So right, right. right, right now, right. when you think of think of like the, the picture that Hubble took as like a nineteen ninety two video game, <laughs> and now it's today Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It's, exactly. You get yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how far we came. Yes. Um, and how close? How close we came? <laughs> exactly seventy hundred miles. Um, and just so cool. some of the things um, uh, that we've learned from Pluto from uh, from New Horizons was, like I mentioned, the degree of current activity on the Pluto surface and the youth of uh, some of the surfaces on Pluto was unexpected. Um, Pluto's atmosphere um, hazes and has uh, lower than predicted atmospheric escape rate, which means um, particles of the atmosphere escaping the planet. Uh, what? Go ahead. I, I just wanted to point out as well how, how crazy it is to have a planet so far from the sun to still have an atmosphere. Even though technically it was in its summertime, so it would have been in its fall time because it was getting close. To still have an atmosphere that freezes and then reacclimates and then freezes and then reacclimates over the right. course of 246 years. Mm-hmm. Right. And so basically um, Pluto has this really funky orbit where... Um, it, <laughs> so oh, yeah. if you, if you remember class, uh, <laughs> Kepler came up with three laws of planetary motion. And one of those laws was all planets have an eccentric orbit. Elliptical ooh, orbit. Ooh, ooh. Wait, 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 wait. He said all planets, right? All planets have an eccentric orbit. But we'll also include asteroids, comets, some comments. So no orbits are exactly circular. Three hundred sixty degrees are no. elliptical. They're so actually, oblong. They're egg shaped. Actually, um, I don't think there's a, a planet in our solar system that has an eccentricity of zero, which would make, would make it a circular, circular planet. Orbit. So a circular orbit. But Pluto, uh, and, and most all eight planets in our solar system, eight, eight have. Uh, eccentricity is very close to zero, which means they're very close to a circular orbit. Mm-hmm. For the Earth, the Earth, 
on average is 93 million miles away from the sun, mm -hmm. which means that it can be, with its eccentricity, it can be as close as 92 million miles or as far away as 94 million miles. Um, so that's really, that difference is really quite small. Mm -hmm. uh, for Pluto, Pluto is very different. Um, and before New Horizons, people, astronomers, I say people, astronomers looked at, they're people too, right? They, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, weirder people, but people. <laughs> um, they looked at Pluto and they knew, they knew Pluto was different. Um, it, it has a very inclinated orbit compared to the other planets in the mm -hmm. solar system at mm -hmm. time. All the other planets are on the same plane. Pluto's is tilted to five degrees. A little bit above it. And below the it. Of the its eccentricity um, is greater than the other planet, so its planet, I mean, its its orbit is not as circular. It's more elliptical, more oval, if you will. And um, Pluto's orbit is so extreme that it actually crosses. Neptune. I have an asterisk on this. Oh. It crosses Neptune's orbit, but never in a way so, that it will run into Neptune, no. or Neptune will run into it. No. No, yeah, just yeah. No. So no Pluto Neptune collision any at all. Yeah, so right. so that that actually will will never happen. So um, prior to two thousand and six, um, the great IAU meeting in two thousand and six, International Astronomical Union, which it's basically like it's like the Wizard of Oz. Basically, you look behind the curtain <laughs> so and it's this guy Wizard of who Oz decides everything. Which uh, Wizard of Astronomy? Which Liz will get into in a bit foreshadowing what, what, do, what do you call it it's not foreshadowing is it foreshadowing sure all right it's foreshadowing, foreshadowing. You can go with that. so <laughs> spoilers well uh, I, I guess i guess at that point when you straight up say it it's not foreshadowing it's like hey there's a gun on the wall it's gonna be used in act three at that point it's, just, it's not so much obvious spoilers <laughs> well okay all right it's fine all right so um where was I? I don't even know where I was anymore. I don't know. Uh, Pluto's orbit is highly elliptical. Yeah, so it crosses Neptune's orbit. Um, so we knew that it was... Um, it was... A trans-Neptunian object, if you will. Ooh. Nice. Ooh. That's a, can that's I, an objective Can I shorten that class. to T-N-O? P-N-O. T. T. Oh, T-N-O? T. T-N-O. T-N-O. That's what we call an initialism. <laughs> All right, so crosses Neptune's orbit for only 20 years. Um, and it last happened from 1979 to 1999. Yep. So when I was learning about the planets in my grade school, because, yeah, um, <laughs> Neptune was technically the last planet in the solar system. So that's why Neptune is my favorite planet. And now since I learned more Aww. about Neptune, it's, there's a lot more reasons why it's awesome. But it was the last planet, so it was my favorite. And for me, who's older than all you people. Yeah. Put together. <laughs> That's up. <laughs> anyway, Pluto was uh, was the eighth planet before it was the ninth planet, and then it went back to and the, then eighth it would be the eighth planet, <laughs> and then it went to the final planet again. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, um, all right. So Pluto. It, it does have an atmosphere. Uh, when it's close to the sun, that atmosphere is active. When it sublimates and becomes an atmosphere. And it even develops a bit of a tail like a comet. A comet. What? Hold the fuck up. What? Oh, shit. What are you saying, Liz? Co Pluto has comet behavior. What? 
Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure she's going to talk about that later. Am I? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I'll talk about it because I'm ready to go. <laughs> anyway, um, as it goes further out, it sublimates. And uh, I mean, when it's close, it sublimates. It sublimates. Becomes an atmosphere and then it freezes out when it's further out. Um, at its closest point, um, Pluto is about um, 30 times the distance between um, the Earth and the Sun, so 30 AU. That's, doesn't sound 3 billion cool. miles, roughly. I mean, yeah, that's a big distance that no one can comprehend, uh, but really in so, universal so if, if, to, uh, distances, it's pretty close, but it's really far away. <laughs> so how many times would New Horizons have to say... And I would walk one billion <laughs> miles, and I would walk one billion more. He a had lot. To say that it just like a went continuously on loop <laughs> in the spacecraft. <laughs> Every time it hit a billion miles, it would play that. Well, going. I would love to hear that. I yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. If I was one of the engineers, <laughs> I would program that shit in. All right. Well, at its closest point, it's about thirty AU out. Okay. Um, at its furthest point out, it's about 50 AU out. So that's, that's a really big difference. Yeah. Um, you're talking, that's a oh, difference okay. of about 2 billion miles. It's a big egg. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Our egg, the Earth's egg, uh, is only uh, 2 million miles. Yeah. This is 2 billion miles. Yeah, that that's a about. lot. So, um, so other things that we've, that we've learned from the New Horizons spacecraft, um, Sharon. 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 Which I I love I love by the way. Sharon was supposed to be called Oz at first, oh, so it just all makes sense. Perfect. Discovered in 1979, by the way. Sharon. Uh, you were ten. I was ten. <laughs> <laughs> this is when the uh, the drinks are getting to us yes. right now. You were minus six. I was minus six. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> You was, were at this time. Uh, I was minus six years old. <laughs> I'm Emily. I'm Emily Watson, and I was minus six oh years old. I hate all you people. I love you forever. No, you uh. know. You say that because you have to. Because in two days, you know what happens in two whatever. Days. All right. So, <laughs> sorry, anniversary. Um, <laughs> Brandon, I Brandon marry you, and I will unmarry you right now. <laughs> With the powers invested in me, Brandon. <laughs> I now pronounce you divorced. Oh, is it that easy? That would make a really easy divorce. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> All right, I have other bullet points. Okay, continue. <laughs> Just kidding. Continue. I mean, I do have other bullet points. Um, Sharon's. Sharon is the moon of Jupiter. Sharon's uh, enormous equatorial extensional tectonic belt. Because you're not That's reading that cheek. from a note. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told everybody I'm reading okay. from a note. Um, hence that, um, basically it hints that uh, Sharon might have had a liquid water kind of ocean underneath oh, okay. its surface. And it's frozen. It's frozen now. It's now frozen. Whereas for Pluto... It there's hints. There's hints that there might that be some have, sort of some water sort of, up oh, underneath. That's right. Right. This, this, this sounds familiar now. Yeah. Okay. So all of Pluto's moons um, can be um, dated by looking um, at the craters, and they all have 
what appears to be the same ancient age, adding weight to the theory that they were formed together. Okay. It, and, and Pluto has Sharon, Nyx, and Hydra? Five moons. Five. Five, five all together now? Sharon, sure. Nyx, Hydra, Karabos, yeah. and... Is it Karabos? Oh, Karabos. Cerebros. Sticks. Sticks? Sticks. Yes. Sticks. All related to Hades, the Roman god of right. the world. So, um, Sharon has this dark red polar ice cap. Mm-hmm. Oh, so Which cool. is a bit unpre- uh, unprecedented um, in the solar system. And what they're thinking is is that it's a result of atmospheric gases that escape from Pluto that have um, accreted onto Sharon and created. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. It sounds kind of like Tholen. Exactly. And so, Brandon, as you drink your Tholen, what is a Tholen? In the, you know what, it's honestly, not a dwarf. I, I, it, it's not a dwarf. It's not the son of Glory. Or as, I don't know what you called the grandson of a dwarf. Grand dwarf. Grand dwarf. It's a grand dwarf. Grand dwarf. Yeah. Um, but at this stage in the podcast, I cannot say exactly what the one is. However, I can say where the name came from. So this was back with Carl Sagan when he ran an experiment to try to create essentially light from organic compounds with lightning. That's because that's how life supposedly got started here on Earth, or maybe on Mars with panspermia, but that's a different podcast. And as they were trying to create this, this goo came out that they just called tholen because it wasn't, it was organic, but it wasn't right. life. So it was just it's, it's organic material. Yeah, yeah. organic material. Now, organic. When you think of organic, yep. Organic does right. not equate life. No, uh, no, yeah. No. All life as we know it has organic material in it, it but having organic material does in a petri dish does not mean, like or on the surface of a moon. Right. All right. Um, so, like I mentioned, um, Pluto has the big heart-shaped thing, um, object, which is the largest glacier in the entire solar system uh, that we know of. But... No global warming on Pluto. (laughs) No. Um, So Pluto shows um, evidence of, you know, some vast changes in atmospheric pressure. Um, It also shows evidence of past um, volatiles being on the surface. Now, um, liquid volatiles, we see the same thing with Mars. There's only... um, Four objects that we have seen this with, and we have seen it, of course, with the Earth. We have seen it with with Mars. We've seen it with Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, and Titan. and now with New Horizons, we've seen it with Pluto. Uh, Can you explain further on what it means by volatiles? What what you're no <laughs> <laughs> like like they have really bi- bipolar personality. <laughs> Are these explosive? What does liquid volatiles mean? Well, I think it's like liquid water on the surface, or or this briny water oh, on the briny. surface. Um, I love briny. Yeah, water. and so delicious. When you're on a an object that has very thin atmosphere, Mars, Pluto, whatever, uh-huh. um, it really doesn't quite stick around. It's very volatile. Oh, okay. So it's not. A permanent feature necessarily it can be right. it can fluctuate. Right, it's volatile. It's volatile. 
Um, Pluto has five moons. When they were going to have New Horizons fly past Pluto, they thought they might find more. Um, and so the, uh, the lack of additional uh, moons was unexpected mm. when they when they found it. I love I love the concept of moons, which are, moons really are satellites. That's mm-hmm. the actual definition of a moon is a satellite, an object in orbit around another body. Exactly. So, okay, sorry, I'm not going to go on the Lurie tangent. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. So, um, it uh, doesn't have a ring system, mm-hmm. which to me is not so much unexpected. Um, but they thought maybe, maybe there possibly would be a ring. I would never think Pluto would have a ring. No, I, and, and it might be this 50 year old brain that goes, oh, the big gas giants have those. And so. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like it would have had the. uh, The ability to rip something apart. The ability to have a ring. Well, it's maybe not necessarily rip something apart. um, Collisions. Because. Collisions, exactly right, with the debris flung out, but at the same time, how heavy those impacts would have been if they were heavy enough to create a seven-like ring would have torn Pluto apart, I would assume. Uh, so, speaking of that, um, I'm not sure if you're we're going this, on this path, but Sharon is kind of equivalent size to Pluto. It's coming in like 0.1 of Pluto's mass, which is massive yeah. for a moon. Right. Uh, how, how did Sharon come into being? Um, well, they do think that came from a collision. Okay. Um, and so... Well, that's, and that's also similar to the Earth's moon, because the moose... Yep. Uh, the moose. I don't know what that the happened. The moose! The Earth. <laughs> I combined Earth and moon. The, the Earth itself is not large enough to have enough gravity to capture a moon of that size, a satellite of that size. Right. And so, really, the the, the only possible way would to have been a collision and then the pieces forming the moon right i i guess i might um um say that you could also have them form together okay um but the evidence doesn't point that direction right, no matter right, what right. A, yeah. an astronaut might say um but um but yeah so anyway so um sharon is how did that get all the way up there? But Sharon is about um, half the diameter of Pluto. And so there's this um, thing called the Berry Center in physics, uh, which is, keep, keep think talking. of it as like <laughs> the center of mass of, of two objects, and they orbit around this center of object, uh, the center of mass. And if you look at the Earth, the Berry Center for the Earth and the Moon is actually inside the Earth. Um, for Pluto and for Sharon, it is actually outside of Pluto. It is between the two objects. And so astronomers like to think of Pluto and Sharon as this double planet type Uh, object. Uh, binary planets. planets. things. Like, I know, I know we talked about kinks earlier, but binary planets are totally cool. And what's really cool about Sharon and its relationship with Pluto is that the two are tidally locked to each other so one day on pluto is about 153 earth hours long okay it takes it takes sharon day i know right fucking monday one day on sharon well the amount of time well one day and the amount of time it takes for sharon to go around pluto is also 153 hours long so if you were on pluto 
and you had Sharon above you, it would always be above you. Mm-hmm. If you were on the other side of Pluto and you didn't see Sharon, you, never see Sharon. you would not know it's there. Wow. What a depressing life that I would know. be. <laughs> I know, right? Until you invented, you know, space technology, and then you'd be like, oh, shit, there's a fucking moon over here. <laughs> so, um, um, Pluto, as we have mentioned, has an atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Sorry. Thank you. I appreciate. <laughs> All right. So, as we mentioned, Pluto has an atmosphere. Um, has a very thin atmosphere of nitrogen, methane, and carbon monoxide. Um, and what color is the atmosphere? I know it because I, I know it, but I also saw your notes, but I also know it. What is it? What is it, Liz? It is a blue atmosphere. It's amazing. Yep. Blue though. Blue though. (laughs) So Pluto has a blue atmosphere. Huh. Pluto blued itself. (laughs) Moose. I love that. Oh, oh there's there this very iconic image of Pluto's atmosphere from New Horizons. From behind. So cool. From behind a Pluto, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see the atmosphere, and it is the most beautiful image. It really is. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is that New Horizons took us from this world of pixels, like we're playing Pac-Man. It's this world of pixels. Mm-hmm. To a real object. To, it wow. doesn't. It Uh-oh. does not fundamentally change how I view um, Pluto. No, but it, Pluto becomes this dynamic world, you know, when you would think it would just be just a, a, a frozen ball away out there right. in our solar yeah. system. But we, that's what we expected. Yeah, but yeah. there's so much interesting attributes to it that it's beautiful and amazing and complex and you know it's its own thing and then yeah and then while we're still kind of talking about new horizons while we before we get into us yeah uh, remember the 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 next year on christmas new year's day rather um it passed by a kuiper belt object remember that yeah because that was this next after they went to pluto they were like all right well we still got some juice where are we gonna go 2014 mu69 yep so they decided to go through another object out there in the kuiper belt which where pluto is hanging out in which we'll discuss a little bit further in the next section in the next next hour hour. (laughs) mu69 right and before we get to liz's next hour um, I think that the story of Pluto really is the story of science. Oh, that's yeah, deep. As we learn, we, we change the way we see things. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point of science is you're not stuck in one predetermined stuck. mindset. It is ever evolving and changing based on new information and new. So wait, wait. Yeah. I guess you could say that science is relative. Oh, oh. <laughs> And now it's time for us to take a quick break before we get into the Pluto scandal, the controversy. The scandal. Over Pluto. Ooh. So we'll All right. see ya. All right. See everybody in a minute. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> hey, everyone. So um, previously we were talking about Pluto and what Pluto is and the amazing things that we've learned from New Horizons, but I would think that Pluto is 
unfortunately, mainly known because of the controversy behind Pluto. Um, and there are um, a two sides to this controversy. It is... Yeah, and- Yes, Brandon. Team Jacob and Team Edward. <laughs> yes. So one shimmers. Vampires and... <laughs> do not sparkle. Vampires don't fucking sparkle. God damn it. They I will, do now. I will die on this hill. <laughs> so Pluto, whether it's a planet, as a lot of us grew up with, or is not a planet, which is the most recent thing. And... um. According to the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, thank you. Um, Pluto is not a planet and hasn't been a planet since 2006. People, August 2006. Get over it. I was, I was 15 years old. I was 100. I, was, I, I, I wanted to dig that in. A I don't bit. know. I was 100. I don't know. I was probably 16 to be fair. I was. I was just I moved to Arizona. I was in my twenties. Some twenty. I was twenty. You were twenty-one. I was twenty-one. <laughs> no, no, I was twenty. I was twenty. It's, it's oh, yeah, kind of it, It's really odd how Mike knows how old Liz was, regardless of the year. It's because <laughs> no, it's it's just because he can do math really fast in his head, whereas I cannot. <laughs> yeah. So I was twenty, that, and I only know that because. Dog, stop fighting. Stop playing. I only know this because my first marriage was in 2007, right after my 21st birthday. Okay. That's how I remember that. So So now we're getting back to topic. Wait a minute. Anyway. You were married before? <gasps> I was. What the hell? <laughs> I did not know this. So uh, there was this. Wait a minute. <laughs> we're going to move past that. So uh, there's this huge controversy over is Pluto a planet or not a planet? And it's because I think mainly because Pluto discovered in 1920, as we've discussed, by Clyde, by Tombaugh. And back then, the telescope saw this, you know, small object really far away orbiting the sun. And they're like, oh, of course, it's a planet. It's the ninth planet in the solar system. Hey! Ho! But then... Thank you. You're welcome. As as time has gone on, um, te- telescopes, technology has gotten better, and we've been able to see uh, more things, farther things. Oh. Um, we've discovered many more things that are out by Pluto, <laughs> hanging out with Pluto, so to speak. Things that are in um, uh, roughly the same, uh, that are spherical like Pluto, that have roughly the same composition as Pluto. And then it became where then astronomers were like, well, wait a minute. We're discovering all these new things out there. You know, is Pluto really a planet? You know, are these other things we're discovering, are they planets? Or is there another classification for Mm -hmm. these objects? Oh, are they dancers? They could be. I mean, everything is dancing around the sun. And the sun is dancing around the Milky Way. Everything's in orb around other things. Anyway. (laughs) So what we used to think of a planet is basically a spherical object. So an object that is, has enough, that is massive enough to have a high enough gravity to form itself into a sphere. A, A sphere being the least energetic state 
for an object. Ooh, ooh look at hey. Liz dropping it. Breaking out the physics, I got some physics. Baby. I got some physics up in here. Yep. So, um... If you didn't go there, I was going to go there. Ah, well, I went there. <laughs> I got you. I got you, boo. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pluto is spherical and it orbits the sun. So, ah, duh, planet. But... So as we've discovering more things that are out there, this you know far away from the solar system, other things that are spherical, and one really became the um, defining point, and that was Eris. So in two thousand and three, there was an object spotted, and in two thousand and five, it was actually confirmed in January of two thousand and five, Eris, which was named after the goddess. Of discord and strife. <laughs> Aptly named. Strife. Aptly named because it's going to cause a lot of discord. Actually, right. at but, first, but, but, uh, at first, yeah, I'm going there, Brandon. At first, it. it was called Xena. So who in their right mind changed the name from Xena? An idiot. An idiot. Because Xena is amazing. I love Xena. I grew up on Xena. I met Xena last year at our Fanex here in Salt Lake City. We had the pictures. And middle school me was just a light and joy um, because Xena's badass. So, and actually, it's interesting because in if you've ever watched Xena Warrior Princess, this is what we're talking about for those of you that are like, what's Xena? Um, there is a character in the later seasons, there's a goddess that shows up on the scene, and her name is Discord. No way. Yes. There is a Discord character. What, what, what was her, not sidekick, but life partner's name? Gabrielle. Thank you. Gabrielle um, uh, is played by Renee O'Connor. Of course, Zeno is played by <laughs> Lucy Lawless. <laughs> um, Can we just make this a, like a Zeno podcast now, from here on out? This is now all about Especially Zena. when I crossed over with Hercules, because <laughs> yes. that was just the best episodes. Oh my god, I love the crossovers with Hercules. In fact, I started uh, watching Hercules, and then they brought Zena in as a one-off character, uh, and then it became right? its own spin-off show, which... It's, it's like Angel and Buffy. Yes, exactly, except reverse <laughs> genders. Um, I love Buffy as well. I, I I realized later on in my life that I attuned to these strong female heroic figures because I was a female and I looked up to them. But anyway, <laughs> so so I love this show. <laughs> so so Xena eventually became Eris, the goddess of discord. Um, and it's because so this Eris was was discovered in again confirmed in two thousand and five, and it was about the same. Well, actually, initially it was believed to be bigger than Pluto, which was holy shit. There's an object out there bigger than Pluto. Pluto's a planet, so this is, has to be like a tenth planet kind of thing. It's too many planets. Too man. many planets. Um, later on, they discover that that actually Eris is about the same size as Pluto. Now, Pluto and Eris both reside in an area of our solar system known as the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is like the asteroid belt, but for comets. So the asteroid belt we've talked about in a previous episode is when we talked about asteroids, (laughs) killer space rocks. Um, It's an area between Mars and Jupiter that's filled with asteroids, not like in Star Star Wars, the asteroids are millions of miles apart from each other, okay? (laughs) Drink for Star Wars? I mean, it it was a very obvious Star Wars. I know, but I forgot about the rule. All right. 
So, so you have um, basically these um, these rocky objects in the asteroid belt that Jupiter's gravity prevented them from forming into an actual planet. All right, well, the Kuiper Belt is like that for comets where you have billions of comets in orbit around the sun in this area. And it within this area of billions of comets spread out by millions of miles between them. They're not all just like, hey, hanging out next to each other, besties. Um, you have objects that are, um, that are large enough to be spherical um, orbiting the sun. And so astronomers at that point were basically like, okay, is this a planet or do we need to reclassify or, or distinguish what a planet actually is? Because again, the definition of a planet was spherical object orbiting the sun. That mm -hmm. was as far as the technology had allowed their knowledge to go. But the technology had gotten good enough where the knowledge can now expand farther and we can reclassify things based on new discoveries. Right. Which based is on new horizons. New horizons. <laughs> nice which is the whole is. point of science. I mean, science is not about sticking with what a predetermined model. <laughs> it's not about sticking with what you were raised with. It's a, a science the whole point of science is to learn and evolve and and adjust those preconceived notions uh, on new data that comes in. Right. So as we as we learn more, we change our definition. We change our definition. Things. And, that, and that's, yeah, that's how so, science works. Yeah, science is ever-evolving because we're going to get new data. We're going to get new information that allows us to expand the, and grow our, our knowledge. But, but, but I just want to be sure for all the listeners, there's only one data. There's only one and data. That's, and that's... It's Brent Steiner <laughs> in Next Generation and now in Picard yeah. on January 26th, 23rd, 26th, somewhere around there, 2020. Uh, January 23rd. I'm uh, yeah, uh... so excited. <laughs> anyway, so basically, Eris's discovery in 2005 triggered this whole debate on what a planet is. And so the International Astronomical Union, this is a group that basically is convened to name things um, and categorize things <laughs> within our solar system, right? <laughs> Sure. Let's go for it. Okay. So we have some new rules. Some new rules with what a planet is in our solar system. Now, this only right. applies to our Key solar word. system. Key phrase. In our solar system. Okay. This does not apply to other planetary systems we have discovered outside of our solar system. So exoplanets, um, that is to, TBD, to, to be determined on... <laughs> everything which which makes everything more confusing but within our own solar system the new rules for a planet are a planet has to be spherical okay we knew that uh it has to orbit the sun great also we knew that makes sense makes sense spherical and orbit the sun cool boom pluto's got those the third rule fucks it all up the third rule says that a planet has to have cleared its orbit. That means it must essentially be the dominant gravitational force to sweep out all other objects in its orbit. Yes, Brandon, you want to say uh, something? I'm, I'm I do, but we'll dive into this in okay. a moment. You finish your point. Okay, so Pluto did not clear its orbit. 
Yeah. Pluto is surrounded by billions of other objects in its orbit, not orbit. Right, not share its orbit. Share its orbit with billions of other objects. So not only Eris, but since Eris, we have discovered other dwarf, other what will be called dwarf planets, uh, similar in size and shape to Pluto, but then also billions of comets. Right. So these, you know, irregularly shaped icy bodies in orbit around our sun. Um, so that third rule then throws a kink into everything, and so astronomers, the IAU, then has to come up with a new def a new a new term for these objects that aren't comets, aren't asteroids, but also then aren't planets. They're, they they haven't cleared their orbits, and that term is dwarf planet. <laughs> which has planet in it which has planet in it which makes it even more confusing thanks IAU right the, <laughs> so it's not a planet it's like an almost planet it's like a planet that could if it yeah, sweeped out its orbit the little planet that could the little planets that could which are which are which are Pluto, Eris, um Ceres is one in the asteroid belt in fact Ceres was um originally thought of as a planet um, and then it was changed to a dwarf planet, and now it is a. I'm sorry, <laughs> then it was changed to an asteroid, and now it there is a go. dwarf planet. So Ceres was uh, demoted and then pre promoted. <laughs> promoted. <laughs> promoted. <laughs> this is when the alcohol comes into play. Oh, there's so much alcohol. Um, and then there's several other dwarf planets that are hanging out in the Kuiper Belt with Pluto, such as there's. Um, uh, oh shit! I don't remember. There's one with a really <laughs> weird name. It's like Quirl Quirl. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Q1. Yeah. So the QU something, and there's like a Mea Mea or something, yeah. and I'm Maki Maki It's so it's Hamea and Maki Maki. Because Maki Maki is the Hawaiian god of fertility, and that's what name I tried to buy after. There you go. Nice. <laughs> Nice. Are is that in hopes of something? Well, no. It just felt like I, <laughs> I like the general idea of having a fertility god in the house. It abuses me. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> and well, you know, my my issue with the I don't okay. Um, I have to clarify this. I have no problem with Pluto being a dwarf planet. Okay. Um, because that's what it is. We're finding all these objects mm -hmm. similar to it. We need to change our definition. We have like 15 planets in the solar system. I mean, Jesus. Right. I know, right? <laughs> My issue is that with that third bullet point, mm -hmm. that it has a clear right. orbit, that there is no uh, way to quantify that. Which is what I love Liz said as the dominant gravitational force in its orbit. Yeah. Like, the Earth hasn't cleared its orbit out. Jupiter still has its uh, Trojans. And but it's uh, right. the dominant force. Yeah. But from, exactly. from a science point of view, how do you quantify that? You need that. You need to quantify that. Because is Well, Earth has the moon and maybe a couple asteroids in its orbit. Jupiter has a few hundred asteroids in its orbit. Whereas Pluto shares its orbit with the billions of other objects. Right. So if you add up that mass of everything that shares the orbit of the Earth, um, it is insignificant compared to the mass of the Earth. If you do that for mm -hmm. Jupiter, it is insignificant. insignificant compared to Jupiter. If you do it for Pluto, it is 
Like two times greater than yeah, Pluto. Yeah, so Pluto is not the dominant force. Oh, so Especially because Eris, Eris is about the same size as Pluto. Initially, it was thought to be bigger than Pluto. Where And that but, is what when people were like, whoa, hold the phones. We got something bigger but, than Pluto. But, but let's, say for, let's say, for example, if the, let's say you stuck uh, Mercury at where Pluto is. Uh, would Mercury, for example, be considered the planet? I don't know that the exact mass of those Kuiper objects in the orbit around Pluto. Uh, but would that still be greater? Probably uh, most likely not. not. No. I mean, because one yeah. one of the arguments that I hear is that if you put Earth out at the orbit of Pluto, then it's not going to clear its orbit and all that kind of stuff. You know, but, and that's but fine. could it have cleared it when the solar system was forming? You know, I mean, these things are well established now after four and a half billion years. Well, I mean, uh, when the solar system was forming, right, it's a little bit of a I, I guess my only issue is that you don't that there's no quantification. So if you say that a planet has to, uh, if you take all the mass located in this orbital plane, this orbital area, and you need to define that. Um, that mass is what? 0.1? The mass of the planet? 0.01? Where, where do you draw the line? So it, it, it sounds as if, if I may reach back into my educational background, uh, that this necessarily can't be defined by a quantitative aspect, but you have to look into society and our cultural definition and what we qualitatively call it as. And if we as society determine that this definition should be a dwarf planet based on qualitative reasoning, then that's what we're going to roll with it. Right, but that's not what has happened. Because if you societally look at it, they want to call it a planet. Well, that's because most of society well, 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 at this point Have we taken a vote? Like, well, what, what, yes. what's, the vote, well, what's the voting okay, age so, of planethood definition? So here's the thing. 18, 16, because that's going to so, skew the demographics. So here's the thing. Okay, so... It was Nate Silver. We need Here's him right the now. problem with societal things is that, you know, most people grew up with Pluto being a planet. And so there's a nostalgia and there's this sentimental factor that then people want to keep it as a planet. And the whole, you know, it's a textbooks thing. It's no, in a textbook. we used to have lead paint and it was fine. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, nostalgia doesn't mean that. Science does not care what you think. No, science doesn't care what you think. And that's the point. It does care, though. It no, it doesn't. Well, science itself, it's the scientists that care. But so here's the here's the thing. Like, um people I, I had a point and I was gonna be spot I'm on sorry. it, but now I've forgotten it I'm because sorry. of this whole back and forth. But anyway, so you know, society, of course, it's like every planetary show I did that I mentioned Pluto, there was always at least one person that was very Pluto's a planet. You know, but the thing is, though, Pluto is very much different than all the other planets in the solar system. Not only does it share its orbit with billions of other objects, its orbit is tilted, again, five degrees off the plane of our solar system. It develops a tail like a comet as it gets closer to the sun. So really, it's, it's not, it doesn't really fit in, it doesn't fit as a comet. And it doesn't fit as a planet. And so then you have this new classification of, okay, what about these objects that don't really fit perfectly in these buckets? What can we call them? And so I think that's where dwarf planets come into play. Because I think it's important that you have these 
these classifications instead of lumping things into a category just because of, well, it's spherical and orbits the sun, so might as well be a planet. Because the more classifications you have, the better you are to understand these different types of objects. Right, and those and right. those classifications and it, change as more objects and as you learn are more. discovered. Yeah, as you learn Absolutely. more and define. So could Pluto stay a dwarf planet? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on what future science is going to tell us, you know. And then an, an, another thing to look at as well is Neptune's largest moon, Triton. Triton is about the same size, volume, mass as Pluto, same composition as well. Uh, but it's a moon. Mm-hmm. It's actually a captured moon. So it was probably at one point like uh, It was Pluto, probably a Kuiper Belt object. But, yeah, but we know it was captured because all the moons, let's say, go clockwise around <laughs> Neptune. Uh, but Triton goes here goes counterclockwise. Right. So it wasn't made in the same right. fashion. It was captured. So it was very much so the same thing as Pluto at one point. Uh, so would you think if Earth was around Jupiter, I would still call that a moon. So I guess it's lots of contextual. Oh, right. I mean, well. I think moons, though, have a very strict definition being a satellite of another body. Yeah. So right. whereas, you know, our moon yeah, yeah. and Triton, you know, Triton distinctly orbits Neptune. Whereas Pluto, of course, orbits right. the sun. Right. You know, right. But Triton could have been in the Kuiper Belt orbiting the sun at one point and been captured right. by Neptune, depending on its orbit and whatever. Factors happened, and now it is a moon of Neptune. It's a really cool moon. It though, is. It is a really cool moon. It's got nitrogen geysers that blow at a ninety geysers. degree angle, which is really weird. And astronomers haven't figured out why these well, geysers well, it, it, like it goes right. straight. It goes straight up, and then literally ninety degree, and then it bends at a ninety degree angle, and that's and like what super the cool. fuck is happening there? I mean, it's amazing. There is so much to our own solar system that we don't understand that we have yet to explore. Um, Let's do and it. We're really and one of my favorite <laughs> quotes of a planetarium show that nice I saw quote. was an exoplanet show, and it was narrated by the the actor who played Odo in Deep Space Nine, and um, he says that oh, we're basically in the horse and buggy days of space exploration and i love that because it's really so true we're really really in our infancy of space exploration i mean we just had a spacecraft leave the solar system so to speak the influence of Mm -hmm. our sun Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot we don't understand and so in this process in this infancy so to speak we're you know we're just starting to define things and explain the things we're observing and I think it's really important to have that distinction and those definitions and classification of asteroids, comets, planets, dwarf planets, star, moon, all that. Because right. the more we refine things, then the the better we can then understand and explain things. Then the more right. data and we that- can get. And I think a real-world example of that, because it's just what it reminded me of, in the 1700s, early 1800s, astronomers were looking for an aether in space. Mm -hmm. And you'd be able to judge this aether by the motion of the planets, the motions of the stars out there. And then we're moving on, discovering that the aether doesn't exist. But now we have this weird dark matter Mm -hmm. where we know something should be there. We just can't find it. So it's an interesting progression of just like you're talking about. Right. And uh, aether, by the way, in the early 1900s, they still thought the ether existed. 
Michelson. I love that. The Michelson Morley experiment, which, uh, um, yeah, the Michelson Morley experiment is an experiment to disprove the ether. Mm. Oh, love it. And if, if I can take this full circle here, um, in the early 1900s as well, people thought you don't study physics because we've just about discovered everything in physics and then Einstein blew it up. Uh, but also with yes. Clyde Tomba, when he was doing the observations, a lot of the people around him, a lot of those astronomers thought, you're wasting your time. We pretty much have it all tied up neatly. And of course, that blows up as well. Right. right. And, and to be honest, for anybody that's listening, um, when you have a scientist um, says that, you know, we're pretty much at the end, they're full of fucking shit. Yeah, no, um, there's no end. No. There's, it's not. No. Prior, <laughs> uh, prior to Einstein, it was um, physicists are going to become biologists where they're just naming things. And then quantum happened, 1905. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Einstein, but quantum was actually a few years prior to that. But um, a little letter H changed everything in physics. For the constant? <laughs> Hubble's constant? Uh, not Hubble's constant. Oh, That's no. a big letter H. Oh, okay. This is Planck's constant. Oh, okay. And if it had been like zero, yes, we would probably be a biologist at this point naming things mm-hmm. and classifying things. But it was non-zero. It was very small, but I mean, non-zero. And the, and the fact that the, the definition of a planet that we have today, according to the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, that the fact that it only applies to our solar system is uh, we have discovered so many other planetary systems out there. So those are basically solar systems outside of our solar system. There's so much to discover that it. it's like, okay, I I am on the team Pluto, not a planet, just because that I I like the different classification of things mm-hmm. and for me Pluto it it it's not like the other planets it is different it has different attributes it has different behaviors than the other planets um that we know of in our own solar system and so I think that's important to define oh, yeah. and to single out those differences because there actually was a debate recently in April this year between Alan Stern. So Alan Stern, he's a planetary scientist. He was the principal investigator on the New Horizons mission. He is very much so in the Pluto as a planet camp. Um, <laughs> very much so. Um, he's the general. He is the, of the general camp. of the camp. Um, <laughs> and he debated against somebody else who's not in that camp, who's on the Pluto's adore planet camp um not a planet camp um i can't i can't remember the name because i didn't write it down in my notes was it mike no it wasn't mike brown um it was somebody else i Um, would watch that if it was mike brown oh yeah pay-per-view so mike brown is of course you know the pluto's not a planet camp he's he's the original planet killer he's the original planet killer he 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 literally wrote wrote the book yeah about planet um and, you know, so they they actually held a debate in April about Pluto's classification. And the opponents of 
um, Pluto being a dwarf planet, Pluto being a planet, is that the, the definition should be based on geophysical attributes, not necessarily um, spatial, like where it is, your distance from your sun attributes. Context, context matters, Yeah, so, so basically it's basically a planet is a substellar object that has never undergone nuclear fusion and is rounded by its own gravity, regardless of its orbital parameters. So that's okay. basically basically uh, pre-2006 definition that is basically a planet is spherical and orbits the sun and doesn't have nuclear fusion because obviously if you have nuclear fusion you're a star yeah so um and 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 so i just think that's too narrow that's not broad enough that's not because it you know there's just of what we've seen with the Kuiper belt, um, you know, there's so many other objects out there that don't fit in this, you know, that, that, that just, um, and if we had Alan Stern's definition of a planet where it's just a spherical object orbiting the sun, basically, um, that doesn't do nuclear fusion, um, how many planets will we have in our solar system? Uh, more than eight. Hundreds. Hundreds. I mean, there'd be a ton. I mean, you can't put that into a nice acronym that elementary kids <laughs> learn. You know, my mother. My very. My very. I don't know. <laughs> you don't even know it. You don't even know it. I don't. Something about making pizzas. My very, my very eager mother just. Yeah, that's right. Made nachos. My very eager mother just. Sir. Served, served us nachos. 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 Let's go with that. Just Some, go with that. Stop. I don't remember what the rest of it is. Okay, stop. When it, there's no P, that's it. There's no well, P. Well, the P was pizza. It used to be pizza. Ah, uh, ain't, ain't, ain't no P in there. But there's no P now. Damn. <laughs> Fuck the P. No P for you. Um. Well, you know the crazy thing in this is, um. So we mentioned Mike Brown. Look him up. Um, the original um Planet, Planet Killer. Killer. Pluto killer. Wait, what's it go by? Is it Planet Killer? It goes. It goes Planet Killer. I don't know, but we were gonna have a drink called Planet Killer. Right. So, um, if you in Twitter, I think it's Planet Killer. But anyway, yeah. yeah so right. he actually the very guy that got rid of Pluto as the ninth planet in the solar mm-hmm. system um, thinks there might be a, a Planet X. Another planet X. Right. This Neptune-sized object Mm -hmm. out there. How is that going to change the definition? This is a a hypothetical question. Well, it depends if it clears its orbit If if, if you have... Well, it's not going to because at that distance from the sun, there's no way anything's going to clear its orbit. But if you're a Neptune-sized object with Neptune-sized mass... What, what what would you call that? Uh, extrasolar well, planet? Well, and is it no, that far no, out? Is it, that implies no, exoplanet? It's even it's it within the yeah, that's, of that's, the sun. That'd be a rogue planet. Well, and if that at that mass at that distance, I should say, is it can it be gaseous like Neptune or? Be yeah, talking about ice giants. Yeah, ice yeah. giant. Well, I think I think if they discover it, mm-hmm. we then go back and as science re-evaluate. does, we reevaluate and we. And we come up with a um, a more modern definition of a planet, um, but it needs to be something that you can quantify, right? Because that's yeah. how science works, right? 
Well, and I think it's that's an important part of science is that evolution and that quantification based on new data. You know, because if we just said, oh, okay, here's Eris, here's a, an object that orbits the sun in the Kuiper Belt where Pluto is also orbiting and, you know, it's about the same size as Pluto, you know, and if there's no extra thought to that, if there's no, well, oh, okay, it's a planet, then then science isn't, isn't sciencing. People aren't doing science justice, you know, to really think about, okay, here is something that doesn't fit within the normal parameters of what we know a planet can be or is based on what we've observed. Because if you look at Mercury through your, uh, through Neptune, because Uranus is before Neptune, uh, before, <laughs> through Neptune, I mean, these objects are, you know, they don't really have much in their way. It's just them and a couple other objects hanging out with them in their orbits, orbiting the sun doing their thing you know but then when you look past that you go oh sh oh shit you know we got we got pluto but pluto's not alone pluto's got several other objects that are very similar to it but then it's also got it's same what orbit. we know as comets in its same orbit you know so you do have to take a step back and then reevaluate well then what are these and i think that's very important instead of just going oh it's sure it's a planet you know, and just, oh, sure, it's, yeah, it's this. I think I think that sums everything up very nicely. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, I'm clearly on the Pluto's not a planet, it's a dwarf planet. For now, depending on what the science shows, on what future observations show. Right, and in all honesty, I'm on that same team, and I can't see... The only thing that might throw a monkey wrench in this would be Mike Brown's planet. Well, Planet X. Mm. Yeah, because that would yeah. be weird. I think, yeah. Because I, I think one of the most exciting things in science is to be proven wrong. That right. is! Because that just op that opens up the door for a whole that different world is. of and I love, It's new physics. I love that debate. So you, when you have, and this is going totally off topic, but when you have, you know... Uh, creationists so to speak that are like well blah and you then you have you know evolutionary biologists it's like great show me the evidence oh, evolutionary biologists are like if you have the evidence evidence prove me wrong that'll be a nobel prize in biology like that would be amazing right you know because scientists are always open to new information and new data even if it is something that they're, you know, they're, oh, yes, yes, I'm so uh, aligned with this worldview and it fits and I like it. But if new data comes in, then they're open to that new data because it means that they've learned more. That's more information to help define the world and universe that we live in. And I think that's so important to being locked in some strict right. mindset based on nothing. <laughs> so to speak. Because uh, science, uh, finds, science a finds a way. Science finds a way. It evolves. It is alive, so to speak, based on how our technology develops and, and where we can go <laughs> with it, you know? Just reminds me of the hills are alive with the sound. <laughs> the hills are alive with the sound of science. Yeah, and uh, as as a, a person, individual, we should all be, for for me personally, and I should strive for this, is to be open um, to 
what the science tells us. Yeah, I mean, if you have the evidence, if you have the data, all right. Yep. <laughs> if you have the yep. proof. And I think, and I think at this point, we're kind of repeating yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I know. So We've hard. gone into a loop of, <laughs> hey. <laughs> science is cool. It corrects itself. And it's, long, it's wrong a lot of times. <laughs> um, so I guess we should kind of close mm-hmm. it up with, a, beyond what you've said, Liz, any quick uh, closing thoughts? We'll go over the mic next. Um, I think uh, closing thoughts is that the um, the science has and the discoveries have shown us that uh, Pluto is different from what our preconceived notions of a planet should be, and I exactly. think that should be accepted and and that we should look for more evidence on what's out there and not be constrained to just our solar system because we're discovering a lot Absolutely. of planetary systems out there. And we're just beginning. So we have a lot to learn. Right. And, um, yeah, like I said, um, Pluto really is the story of science. Mm -hmm. And as we learn more, our ideas about the universe should change to reflect those ideas. Mm -hmm. Now, I completely get that. If you were five years old and Pluto was a planet that, hey, it's always a planet. I love it. It's always a planet. It's going to be a planet forever. But that's not how science mm-hmm. works. And yeah. so, I mean, evolve. really, really and truly, Pluto just epitomizes yeah, the story it's, of science. It's a, perfect, it's a perfect depiction of how science works. Yeah. And that evolution mm-hmm. and change. So and, more you know, information. all because we don't call it a classical planet anymore we call it a dwarf planet doesn't mean you can't love it i know it's it's still there it's, it's not like it doesn't exist right it's still Pluto. you know what <laughs> with new horizons uh and the data we got it's amazing you can love it even more it's an amazing beautiful world full of contrasts and activity brandon brandon your thoughts i concur <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're friends <laughs> no it, it's it, it's definitely for me going back to that Percival Lowe quote we had and just using your imagination and basing it off facts to expand your horizons mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, a beautiful idea and science does a wonderful job of that of trying to find out what's true out there and how you are wrong and a lot of times that takes so much imagination to imagine what other existences may be out there to change your line of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I like it. I like it. All right. Like and that's, and I would that's say. Our, that's, that's our, that's Pluto. Yeah, our look at Pluto. That's so Pluto. what are we talking about in a few weeks? We're, we're talking about, oh, that's, um, ooh, it's Halloween. It's getting close Halloween. to Halloween. So we're going to be talking okay. about what? Uh, Monsters of the Galaxy. Monsters of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Some creepy shit out there in the universe. The exoplanets that will scare you. Yeah. So if you think you know... Pulsar? Wait, 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 wait. Pulsar? Is that like start your heart racing? Yes. Since they move so fast? You think you know what a planet uh, is? You think you're safe with your rocky worlds man, and your gas y'all, giants? Y'all don't, y'all don't you know. You don't know what's <laughs> fucking going on out there. So we got, some, we got a horror show of the universe for you. Right. And uh, Liz and I had a conversation about uh, uh, vampires yesterday. Wait, wait, y'all talked about it. We did. Yeah, we did. We, were... we are going to bring that in 
We talk a lot without you. Because <laughs> we live together. I am a cult. <laughs> but we, yeah, we had amazing conversation <laughs> at a theme park yesterday about what kind of light um, affects a vampire. So we're gonna we're gonna bring that in. Oh, we're bringing that in. We'll in a bring few that weeks. into the next podcast. Well, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Hold off, because I have th- I have. Okay, th- <laughs> right. well, we had thoughts too. So Not now we'll talk about that because you know, uh, current definition of vampire stri- is very strict. I mean, we can stretch a shirt for another two hours, right? <laughs> no, it's already it's already gone too long. I gotta right. edit. Well, this. this- <laughs> This was fantastic. It was fantastic. Um, thank you for those listening. Um, you can follow us at, at Drinking Cosmos on Twitter. Um, follow us there. You can hit up our website at cosmoswithcosmos.com. And currently we're streaming on Twitch. Which I think we'll do regularly. Under now. my username currently, which is Skizdiz. Because it's an uh, inside joke from but, long ago. But we'll but probably make our new Cosmos with Cosmos Twitch um, and YouTube as well. So um, thanks. So we'll for, see you next time. Well, Thank you. Thanks for joining, and thanks, and we'll. Bye, everybody. We'll see you. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. I like it. Follow us on Twitter at Drinking Cosmos, or check out our site, CosmosWithCosmos.com.